Directors Club. I am Jim Laskowski. I'm Patrick Rapol. And we have a very special guest. As always, we're so excited to have Mr. Dave Canfield Hello, here in the room. Listeners. Yes. And you're the host of the Mindframes podcast. Recently, uh, a welcome addition to the Now Playing Network. Yes, and we've been very, very grateful for the Now Playing Network, and uh, happy to be here today. Great, and you've done a lot. You've you've accomplished quite a bit. You've been published uh, in several books, and you've uh, written for Screen Anarchy for quite a while. I'm, that's right. I'm very old. Yes. Uh, <laughs> actually, I've contributed chapters to uh, books like Yuletide Terror, Christmas Horror on Film and Television, uh, and Satanic Panic, Pop Culture Paranoia in the 1980s both from Spectacular Optical Press. I've, uh, of course, been writing with Screen Anarchy since before it was Screen Anarchy, when it went back when it was Twitch Film. Mm. Uh, so I guess you can call me one of the nine old men of Twitch, is how I sometimes refer to myself. That is my favorite Italian horror film. The, the, ni- the nine, nine old men of Twitch. I don't know. It sounded, dead flies yeah, exactly. of, it sounded like it was a GLM. The nine old men of Twitch. <laughs> <laughs> I really do have to pick up the... It loses something uh, in translation, you know. Yeah. Seven times above a lady of suspicion or mm-hmm. something. I don't know. I wonder how they pick those numbers. I wonder if they have a marketing meeting where they're like, it's not enough gray flies. <laughs> oh, no, no, no. <laughs> we, we I don't more. think there was a budget for marketing on, on most of that. I think uh, I think a lot of that was AI. That was the first use of AI. Most people don't. Just know oh, that. yeah, just yeah. Absolutely. Giallo titles. <laughs> Your vice is a locked door, and I have the key. There has to be a. There yes. has to be someone has created a machine learning bot that they fed all Giallo titles into, and then it just spits them back out. I had some friends. They were in a band called Believer. They were a death metal band, mm-hmm. really, really, really tight and and brutal, and they were also all hyper intelligent. So they would play in all these weird time mix signatures and everything. They one time rolled dice to determine the time signatures for their entire album. And I feel that way sometimes when I watch Giallo. Mm-hmm. You know, like there's just somebody in the background going, Daddy needs a plot twist. That, 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 is, that is the appeal. It's like that chaotic sort of nature. It's like, I don't think they thought this one through. I don't know what's going to happen next. Understandable. Well, the, this wackiness can continue because we're about to talk one about one wacky Canadian filmmaker named Guy Madden today, mm-hmm. and it's gonna, I'm very excited for this episode, and uh, we'll get into more great detail as to why. It was the sense of humor that surprised me the most. Before this, I'd never seen a Guy Madden film before I started prepping for this episode. Mm-hmm. I had certain ideas based on having seen posters and maybe a clip or two or something. I had certain ideas about the way those films operated and how they regarded themselves. And I was very happy to have those ideas like completely torn to bits, uh, specifically about the sort of wackiness and humor of his films. 
Yeah, and there's certain titles I wish I could have found and tracked down, uh, particularly like what he did with Vertigo. But I think that's the more green like ray. A, yeah. That's oh, one of those things. Green, that's like, so bad. The probably not going to reach a Blu-ray anytime soon. Probably nope. not. Yeah. Um, but you know, you, you just like every sub, uh, every you know genre film festival or something like that. That that would be a get. Is like, oh, they're going to show the bl- green ray. So like, that's my hope. Is that it's at the some green, point the green fog? The green fog. My yes. mistake. The green ray is uh, what's his name? Uh, the uh, Eric Romer. You're not oh, thinking of yeah. Man Ray. No. I'm thinking of Man Ray. This is like six degrees of something. I don't know. Yeah. Mm. I, you know, you know. I actually did watch a bunch of experimental shorts from like the silent era and on. Yeah, as I, part I of I'd just like that. emerging myself in the sort. Of, I'm like, all right, I'm going to meet Guy Madden on his level. And I think I did watch a Man Ray as part of like a YouTube frenzy. Awesome. <laughs> sure. <laughs> so that's there we go. It all comes back. Um, so you are probably the most prepared of all of us. I really so. am not. Absolutely not. But I am excited to talk about Guy Madden, and I'm so excited to do so that we got to just tear through our first segment. We can't. We can't start with the director. I know. I was about to say we could just talk about Contagion and Outbreak for the whole show, but that's a. We've all been talking about Contagion and Outbreak for yeah. the for the past four weeks. Um, Indeed. Yes. So we should just move on because we want to be distracting, wholesome, escapist entertainment for our listening audience. I did notice you guys did rent the uh, the plague monkey, though, to run, <laughs> oh, wow. to run around the apartment. I and, uh, uh, we can't really go into details. Atmosphere. Yeah. Uh, Jim, uses, it's not atmosphere. I'm not going to go into yeah. <laughs> monkey. I'm just saying that a monkey has certain skills. <laughs> and we'll leave it at that. Um, no, hey. that's just my cat. Yeah. <laughs> Also, there's the, uh, as, as you know, Dave, there's the new Director's Club mascot oh, behind you right. there. There is a Director's Club mascot now. Yes. Oh, look at that. Uh, it makes me want to say, you spilled the beans. Why'd you spill the beans? Also makes me want to do this. Yeah. Just Sp- hammer it against them. Speaking, oh, sure. uh, speaking of a uh, director, we are we are holding a uh, seagull uh, from uh, the mm-hmm. lighthouse for, for our audio listeners, as opposed to all those people who are watching us, which are all on the podcast right now. Yeah, um, Stephen the seagull. Speaking of a filmmaker who uh, <laughs> takes some really esoteric. Like 19th century influences. Are you talking about Steven Seagal? Um, no. Yeah, Steven Seagal. <laughs> Steven Seagal. I mean, I don't know if you... Ha, have you... Oh, shoot. What's that? What's the name of the movie with Michael Caine? Where he's like... On Deadly Ground. Ground. On Deadly Ground. <laughs> yeah. It's, That's one of those wonderful Michael Caine movies that... I, I fear is so generic that I, I cannot remember if I actually saw it or on not. deadly ground is the, um, cause he was in a lot of Upton Sinclair of our times. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> sure. Yeah, okay. That and, makes and sense that's, to me. That's the Steven Seagal movie that ends with the uh, seven minute monologue about how important <gasps> the environment yes. is. Yeah. I remember being very uh, angry when I walked out of the screen. Right. Of that. There was not nearly enough action. In like this you, movie. you were completely had Dave, you know, Hey Jim, yo, you want to talk about what we watched this week? <laughs> I'm all for it. <laughs> yes, let's do it. What we watched this week Santa Sangre and Gosford Park And then later Wait until dark home alone What we watched this week The animal and die hard too Striptease gator 
Citizen Ruth, Navajo Joe. Oh, it's what we watch this week. I'm glad I spent it with you. Oh, what we watch this week. Why are they making Beetlejuice too? Who the fuck wants Beetlejuice too? What'd you see recently, Dave? Okay. Um, I love that you do this because the truth is a lot of the time we see so many movies that you don't think about what you watch. You just sort of are continually always watching things. Indeed. And when I had to think about the last two movies I've seen, one uh, was a really great film from the last couple of years called Hagazusa, mm. The Heathen's Curse. Which uh, is Did that place in Apocalypse, if I recall? You might know that from a movie that I wrote a review for on your very website, Jim. That's right. I'm like, I've, I know this title. <laughs> yeah. It's akin to The Witch in terms of its subject matter That's and right. its atmosphere. That's right. But uh, it's largely dialogue free and it is really disturbing and dark. It makes The Witch look like The Conjuring. Like, you see this compared to The Witch. The Witch is like, oh, this is not slow paced at all. Yeah, no. This is like, wow. this is like if the, uh, uh, this is The Witch. Without the semi maybe happy ending, I mean, I mm-hmm. guess that girl at the end of the witch got something that she wanted, but uh, nobody gets what they want in uh, <laughs> in Akazusa. <laughs> but then I saw the movie that I'm really excited to talk to you guys about. I rewatched, and I hadn't seen this since it was in the theater. Volcano the, uh, with Tommy Lee Jones from the director of L.A. Story. That's right. That's a hell of a double feature. <laughs> it wasn't. They weren't on the same night, okay. and I had watched Dante's Peak a few days before because uh, I'm so sick and twisted. The part that I love about Dante's Peak is that when the grandmother dies. I just think that's one of the great moments. That's that. That's the, that's the exciting thing about disaster movies is there's. You're not going to watch a movie that's a murder mystery and then suddenly, you know, a volcano erupts and someone dies. <laughs> a disaster movie, you get to see something that you don't see every day. No, not every day. And, and particularly when the effects are that well done. The effects in Volcano are awesome. So this is why I always think. Hmm. So Volcano stuck in my brain because as a child, I watched 15 VHS tapes incessantly because like my parents never took me out to the movies or to the video store. So I just sort of watched the movies we owned over and over again. And one of them was Independence Day, um, which had a trailer for Volcano. This is how ah, removed I am. Wow. So at some point, I rented Volcano and this is again, this is like when I'm 13 or whatever. I have like the vaguest memory of it, but now, like, looking back, looking at like, oh, this is a movie from 1997. This is like the, if you think about the late 90s, it's like the last gasp of like practical effects. I mean, there's, there's a lot of optical shots. Yeah. There's, a, there's probably a little bit of CGI here and there, but there's probably a lot of really fascinating miniatures and stuff. And I'm like, I should see Volcano again because a volcano in LA, like, I want to see how they do that in 97. It's got Anne Heche, so it has a genuine uh, has been in it. It's got a scene, a gratuitous scene with a dog being rescued. Which I think every every disaster movie needs. Aww. It's got a spectacular death of a character that is only in the movie so he can die. And uh, it has Tommy Lee Jones 
uh, screaming at the lava that uh, he doesn't care if he did it or not. Uh, and then the lava jumps out of the tunnel and you know falls down to the the falls. Is and- this is this one of those movies where Tommy Lee Jones is the only one who understands what a volcano is? Like he's for some reason he's a volcano expert and no and everyone's like you're crazy. <laughs> There's no way a volcano is going to explode here. That's more Dante's peak. Okay, that's the Pierce Brosnan character is the one trying to convince everybody in this movie. Anne Hayes is a geologist who kind of clues the uh, uh, federal federal emergency management ahead, who is Tommy Lee Jones, that something is going on in the town with a volcano, and you know he uh, they team up together. Another great thing about that movie is there are several scenes where characters are flummoxed by what's going on geologically, and they say hmm. something along the lines of, well, let's go down there and take a look, which, of course, never ends well in any of those scenes. So, Wow, and it takes place in the La Brea Tar Pits from Miracle Mile. That's right. Nice. Well, I guess instead of uh, going to Los Angeles like I planned to, I guess I could just watch Volcano instead and get, get a little history lesson from this film. Absolutely, absolutely watch Volcano and Dante's Peak together, and then go watch a documentary about how Yellowstone is going to blow sometime in the next, what, <gasps> couple of months? Really? Oh. Uh, there's a super volcano under Yellowstone, and there are what? all these documentaries that basically highlight the fact that if it ever blows again like it did before, it's going to extinguish all life on Earth. So you know, I don't oh, know if you're okay. like me. I go out and I look for that stuff for fun, and yeah, yeah. I watch a lot of it. So wow. other, other question, how many moments in Volcano are like... It's L.A. <laughs> like, like there's some guy who's like has a latte and he's like, and then like lava oh, yeah. comes. He's like, oh, no. Like, is that is that that kind of movie where they they make a lot of jokes like, welcome to L.A. Yeah, you can totally tell that the director of L.A. Story is yeah. the one that directed <laughs> Volcano. Uh, there's a lot of a uh, lot of L.A. in it. And I think that they really were excited to be able to destroy L.A. Because L.A. doesn't get destroyed as no, much in movies. absolutely not. It's usually New York, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. So, or Washington. So this was a real joy. They trashed some billboards. And uh, I don't think you see the Hollywood sign get it, though. So really? So points off for that. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I don't know how in the, like, yeah, in the pitch stage you don't have some executive go, the Hollywood sign's going to get it, right? <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. Oh man! Is that so? I'm trying to like I'm trying to figure out where Tommy Lee Jones because obviously Tommy Lee Jones is in Men in Black around this time as well. And I want to say Men in Black has to postdate this because again you're mentioning all the optical effects, mm-hmm. whereas Men in Black definitely took that leap into computer. Effects. Sure, sure. Yeah, uh, I, would, I think Volcano came out in the spring of '97. And yeah. Men in Black came out in the summer of 97. I see. I see. I'm pretty sure. So I'm, I'm trying to like, wh- why do you get Tommy Lee Jones for this movie? You know, I, because I think Tommy Lee was sort of selling himself by this point in his career mm. as the guy that looks earnestly into the camera, sort of the poor man's Harrison Ford. Sure, mm-hmm. sure. You know? Or yeah, he's he's like the guy, like he has this gravitas and authority. Yeah. And yeah. so you're yeah, going to trust sure. him when he says, you got to get out of the subway, <laughs> you know, or whatever. <laughs> he's got those sad, wonderful, sad eyes. Yeah. Go well with any Those disaster. puppy dog eyes, kind of, yeah. Yeah, we talked, like last. Le- it was oh. last episode that we uh, we talked about, um, oh, what's the movie? 
I always forget the title. It's uh, Rolling Thunder. Oh. oh. He's <laughs> so talk, great in Rolling wanna, Thunder. You want to talk about a good use of his just sad face? <laughs> Any excuse to yeah. talk about Rolling Thunder. And that's the thing is Volcano like any most disaster movies, but especially Volcano is absolutely just could not be further removed from reality. Oh, sure. That's be. what you expect from and, uh, most and disaster yet, movies. And yet they play it completely straight. The optical effects are great. They've aged really well. Uh, it's just one of those great things. I think if you were surfing the channel, you'd for sure just leave it on and sort of enjoy it in the background. While yeah, I would think on. I would think going back to this would be a little bit more fun than the, the Roland Emmerich take of this genre because i i just couldn't even when they came out and i saw them in theaters just out of curiosity like the day after tomorrow 2012 those movies are just awful yeah, yeah i have a i have I, I swear some kind of like brain disease where it's cgi i cannot enjoy like mm-hmm. it like it's it's just i know that the effects in something like day after tomorrow they're not really that less believable than the effects of you know some movie from the 60s you know from destroy all monsters or something right yeah yeah yeah. but in my head like destroy all monsters is a great old is a great old time and world like i can't imagine why anyone would want to watch day after tomorrow right you nailed it you you absolutely nailed it because i think that you know when you look at the when you look at the cinema of roland emmerich uh and there are roland emmerich movies i enjoy more than others but I think the real question is, is when you have an aesthetic, and he certainly does in the way that he uses digital effects, does it world build for people? Ray Bradbury used his effects in a lot of okay movies, but they're fantastic anytime. Ray Harryhausen. Mm-hmm. Ray Harryhausen. I'm yeah. so yes. sorry. Like, Ray Bradbury. Uh, wow. The great unsung hero yeah. of the effects industry. But I, I do think that Harryhausen did that. He was a he was a world builder. I think Guillermo del Toro is a world builder mm-hmm. with his aesthetic. And I think that um, unfortunately, uh, you know, and a lot of the and the kaiju movies offer an aesthetic with their miniatures and the way all that is utilized. And sometimes it's pretty startling and really pretty cool. But with Roland Emmerich, it just I think the thing that doesn't work for me, there's a great shot in 2012 where you see a plane being piloted between two collapsing buildings. And that entire movie is one improbable moment after another of near-death escape. And there's no sense of world building. There's only a sense of throwing spectacle at you. So I just have never been able to get into those films. Mm -hmm. Understandably so. I feel a disconnect when I watch those as opposed to, yeah, it'd be fun to go back because this came out at a time when I was going to the movies pretty much every weekend with my friends and we had a blast with Dante's peak and volcano and to some extent, deep impact. Uh, but I think Armageddon, we were just like, Nope. (laughs) Yeah. Armageddon is one of the most relentlessly unwatchable movies ever made. I think think so for me. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Wow. I like the end of deep impact quite a bit though. Or something mm, about I haven't watched that. I can't watch that way yeah, come yeah. and Armageddon was one of the videotapes we had. <laughs> oh, no. I've seen Armageddon like thirteen <laughs> times, probably. Oh. Well, I think that's the problem. We have all seen it thirteen times, yeah. but do we feel good about that? I, think. I feel good about the fact that a lot of good character actors got paychecks. <laughs> that's, <laughs> sure. that's generally my feeling about like Michael sure, Bay sure. movies is that there's going to be some very good pay, uh, character actors, and they get some really nice paychecks out of it. They do, they do. Yeah. But what happened after The Rock? Why? Why? 
can't we just keep making good movies? I didn't understand. Oh, I don't know. Still don't understand. It's, uh, you know, I, 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 what, I, what was the Six Underground is the Netflix movie that oh, Michael yeah. made recently. That's, yeah, that's came out weird. last year. Hmm. So there is something in me that wants to understand everything. Like I want, like if I don't like a filmmaker, there's something in me that wants to keep diving in until I understand at least why other people like it or whatever. And like, I have watched transformers too. And like, just sat there knowing that I wouldn't care about the characters or the story or anything else. And just trying to actually very dial in and like, how is, how is he constructing these things? And there is something about Michael Bay movies. There is something about even in the CGI era, there's just a lot of actual cars being blown up. And there's a lot of, like, there is something right. about, the, there's an opening chase scene in Six Underground, which is maybe one of the worst movies of last year. So I'm not, <laughs> not in any way defending this movie, which is absolutely terrible. But the opening chase scene, there is a way that he sort of, uh, he sort of coordinates all of the mayhem and he coordinates just like innocent bystanders getting sideswiped by cars and just like, <laughs> you know, all sorts of collateral damage and stuff like that. There's something about the way he does it where it isn't just like in Armageddon. There's a lot of scenes where it's just people talking in a room. But because he's Michael Bay, he has to cut it a 100 times and like have cameras rotating around people as they're talking in a room. And you're like, God damn, just let me watch this fucking. Yeah, yeah. These two people have a conversation. And then you get to. But like in the action sequences, there is a spatial awareness. There is a. He does actually sort of know what he's doing there um, huh. in staging the mayhem. Um, I don't know. I mean. It's funny. I mean, he's the whipping boy, right? I mean, yeah, yeah. He, he's yeah. to this day sort of the person that everybody. Just- I, I think it's because he's the most successful one. And that's what makes all the followers who do it worse, <laughs> like, show up. Um, there are people who absolutely don't have that sense of geography and don't have that sense of how to stage these sequences who are sort of just doing very bad imitation of Transformers and Transformers isn't very good to begin with. Yeah, and after like Paul Greengrass kind of took off, that style was being mimicked way too often. Mm-hmm. The shaky cam during action scenes. Well, it, were sol- just- it solves a lot of problems. Of right. Yeah. Just like how everyone... like. Well, and that's the funny thing. You bring up Paul Greengrass, who's like the opposite side of that coin, right? He's somebody who makes good movies. Mm -hmm. All of his movies are pretty good. And uh, United 93, and some of them are absolutely gripping. Yeah. So, you know, he's doing something with that. His aesthetic that I think that's what eludes a lot of critics of Bay is, I want to feel something when I watch your movie, not just watch something. Yeah. You really, I, I, th- I think, I think at a certain point you have to <laughs> sort of just die. Like you have to understand that you are dealing with like a misanthrope of the first order, and Absolutely. just and just sort of like have a morbid fascination with that. With just like wow, like some of the jokes that just get popped up. Like even you know as far back as The Rock, there is just like just some like random character will pop up, and it's just like some sassy black lady does, something, and you're just like. I'm really getting an unfiltered worldview from this guy of like how he views the world. And that takes on like bad boys Two is the most for me unfiltered. Like, like (laughs) Michael Bay is the, the Fabio 
of, <laughs> of, of action movie directors without the charm mm. of Fabio. You know, we all sort of like Fabio because he seems like he's a halfway <laughs> decent guy. I remember speaking to action movies. He was on a, a, a roller coaster the, a number of years ago. And he got a bird. Like literally <laughs> broke his nose in the middle of a roller coaster ride. And he got off the roller coaster with his blood all over his, his beautiful face. His nose broken. Uh-huh. God knows what that cost an insurance company. And... He was he was okay with it. He was a charming, cool, <laughs> real human being, and I don't know that that's how people think about Michael. <laughs> I mean, no, no, it's, but it's like at a certain point you're just like at the heart of a lot of exploitation films, a lot of action film. I watched um, what's the uh, I watched some Dirty Harry movie. Was it? It was either Equalizer. It was the Enforcer. The Enforcer. Okay. The Enforcer recently, like. At the heart of a lot of genre films is a very conservative and sort of anti-humanist worldview, uh, especially when it's like about police and it's just like everyone out there is insane and they're all on drugs and they're just looking yep. to stab the first innocent person they can see. And like that's the view of the world. And it's like, thank God we have men like Dirty Harry out there yeah, who don't and, let uh, bureaucracy get in the way of, of putting these trash to justice. And like – Taking that, out the trash. Yeah, exactly. So, like, that's already just sort of in the background of like most action movies. Well, you really, feel like yeah, you feel like some. You feel like maybe Michael Bay was influenced by sort of a heartlessness or something in his right. approach to cinema. Yeah. Bay is just like the most uncut version of that. And like, if you're interested in the genre as a whole, it's kind of interesting to see just how fucking bleak it could get. Oh, Transformers 2, uh, 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 just briefly for me, I had missed my press screening and I got a hold of the IMAX people and said, hey, um, I know you guys just did the press screening is there any way I can creep into a screening of it? I got to get it covered. And they said, yeah, yeah, bring somebody and just come. And I thought, this is great, man. Got comped into the IMAX and I'm going to go see Transformers 2 and it'll be loud and dumb and fun. Well, it was, it was two of those. Uh, basically, it opens with a shot of Megan um, Fox, Fox leaned, leaning over a motorcycle and they shoot straight up into her crotch. It's the first thing you see. And every woman in the movie is either a bimbo or a, a, a thoroughly evil um, or, or an idiot. Um, then you've got the two robots that run around that fight one another uh, who talk in ebonics. Right. Uh, mm-hmm. And who can't read. And um, both of those, by the way, are um, you know voiced by white voiceover actors including tom kenny who should have known better in wow. my in my opinion and then on t- to top it all off to the, to the 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 cherry on the mountain if you will were the, was that one of the robots had testicles bouncing on chains between his legs and they had passed out coloring books to kids before this movie and all I can think is, oh my gosh, this makes bad boys too look progressive. I mean, it's just like so gross. Well, I think the specific story behind Transformers 2 is that there was a writer's strike and they were like, well, this movie's getting made. And basically it had half a screenplay and the other half was just, they were just like, well, we trust you, Michael Bay. Do what you're going to do. <laughs> Michael Bay's like. Say no more. <laughs> Transformers 2. Like, that's, no. the, that's the result. So, like, 
I actually just bought The Rock on Blu-ray. Well, I mean, part of it was I was drinking, but the other, the oh, other yeah. part was just like, there is something... The late night drinking eBay purchases. That, that movie is like, it's just uh, main... It's like, it's not quite wicked enough <laughs> that you could sort of enjoy it as a as a diehard kind of movie, and some of the action stuff is good. And Yeah, I remember enjoying it. Yeah. And, yeah. and again, it's like... It's got the Sean Connery character who might be James Bond. I mean, it's, it's kind of fun. And I think that came out that came like out before that. con air right yes oh, so yes. like that was the one where someone had the idea of making nicholas Cage. i mean in that movie he's like sort of a sidekick to connery but like once nicholas cage became an action star he never looked back he never looked back and that's an inspired thing of just having this like insane unhinged character actor be your the like anchor of your action movies well i mean we do have to thank Michael Bay I then for Mandy because we wouldn't have Mandy right, without, exactly. without that, without Connie. I mean, we that. also have to thank Nicolas Cage for his tax issues. <laughs> <laughs> so, for collecting I've, dinosaurs. I feel, I, feel a little bit, I feel a little bit like a jerk for not loving Mandy or Color Out of Space. It's okay. You know, I love I don't know those what, movies, it's, but it's okay. We yeah, like it's just like there's, there's just some weird disconnect I have with both of those movies where it's just like... He just goes over the top and big in certain moments, but it's not like it's not a consistent performance. It's just like I'm going to act crazy some of the time. I'm a vampire's kiss, Wicker Man. Sure, no, those guy. are great. No, those are great. And I love the moment in Mom and Dad where he starts screaming the hokey pokey at the top of his lungs while he demolishes a uh, that was great a pool table with yeah, a yeah. sledgehammer. That was that was pretty great. Yeah. Uh, apropos of nothing, you mentioned Fabio. He shows up in a dream sequence in Exorcist Three, and I'm like, <laughs> yes. what? Him and a bunch of other people, if you look. Hmm. Uh, I forget. There's a very famous basketball player yeah. um, who winds up. What year is Exorcist 3? 90. I, I just watched it for the it 1990 90? Spectacular episode mm. we did. And it just gets better every time I see it. Absolutely. What a great movie. Indeed. I agree. Let me talk about something. You also mentioned Morbid Fascination. I watched a movie called Swallow. Have you heard of this? Oh, I can't wait to see it. It's, uh, I believe it's available on VOD now. I think it is. Yes. Yes, it is. It's IFC, right? Um, yes. And it's, it's something else because I had no idea what I was in for. And the, the publicist sent me the link for this. And I kind of went, hmm, okay. It's a little bit of body horror, essentially. A little yep. bit, a little bit, you know? I mean, but it's like, if Todd Haynes in the era that he made safe made a body horror movie because it has that kind of pristine symmetrical Kubrickian sort of aesthetic going on and uh, you know, very slow pans and, you know, slow tracking shots. And uh, there is actually a moment I, I was just like, okay, you must be a big fan of safe cause you're just slowly zooming in oh. on a woman sitting on a couch as she's drinking, uh, not a glass of milk, but I think just like a glass of water or something. But I'm just like, yeah, I think I know what you're going for now. But did, you, <laughs> did you happen to see uh, the movie um, by Cam Everall called um, Evernall called uh, Housewife? No. Did you see Bitch, which is a, a movie where a housewife starts to think that she might be a I, dog? I've been meaning to because I do like the. I believe the actress who made it, and I can't remember her right. name, but I, I can't either. But yeah. it's a, but it's a great it's a great film and played the Chicago Film Critics uh, Film Festival right. a couple. It's years kind ago. of in that same vein, yeah. Of and it's, the and deconstruction it's, of house of housewives. And, yes, and, and this woman in particular, domestic, you know, um, 
is newly pregnant and she begins suffering something that I remember reading about in a psychology textbook, but never really saw portrayed in any movie before. And it's called Pika. I've and, actually worked with people who have Pika. Oh, wow. And uh, it is amazing to watch, but it is that irresistible urge to just put anything in your mouth. Yes. Uh, Haley Bennett plays the, the, just like, kind is of, this like people who like swallow stones and stuff like that. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And it gets to the point where it sort of escalates to where she wants she swallows very dangerous things like thumbtacks. Yeah, and the sound design oh. in the moments where she's ingesting these things, they just oh, that's it what really makes it un- Cronenbergian. Yes, it really unnerves you. And you know, uh, she's just this, it's essentially this housewife who's again newly pregnant depressed socially awkward like when she goes to dinner parties her husband's of course the life of the party and she's just there um kind of feeling really lost and not being able to connect with other people uh her husband is very distant more invested in his phone and he he's just like your typical like toxic jerk who yeah. really just doesn't who who wants more of an obedient picturesque wife than a complex human being with feelings and so eventually, slowly but surely, and one could argue that maybe it gets a little repetitive initially, where we just see it like you know a series of her deciding to ingest certain items that are in the house, and uh, then the family finds out that this is happening because she eventually you know goes into surgery and they take all these items out, and uh, obviously they're concerned for the baby, they're concerned for her own mental well-being, and it's sort of like how does this family sort of respond to her, her condition and how does she overcome it and how does she dis- eventually sort of break free from, a, from her domesticity. And uh, it's, it's really stunning, um, especially the acting here from Haley Bennett. I'm not too familiar with her, but she does have like a Michelle Williams quality in this. And it's just, it really unnerves you the more and more it plays out. And again, I, I, Watching it, I just couldn't help but think of, of the work of Todd Haynes. So I was 100% on board. Did it remind you of the uh, of the film Trouble Every Day mm. with uh, Beatrice Dahl? Yeah, I could see a little. I could see or, it a little bit. Yeah, in my says skin. Claire Denis. Yeah, 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 yeah. 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 In, in my skin. Yeah. yeah, I could see that a little bit. I mean, it's, again, it's less of a horror movie. It's right. It's. You know, it feels like it's initially going to be, um, you know, kind of a uh, Douglas Cirque type experience because of the way everything is framed and there's gorgeous colors and great production design and pristine houses and things like that. It's funny, but if you think of something like that as progressive cinema, mm-hmm. particularly in the in the horror field or in the in the dark fantasy field, then you know. It makes me really wonder where we're going to be at in 10 years because right now we feel so focused with all of our themes and we feel like we know what's important to talk about and we're addressing all these issues of, of, of uh, identity. And, yeah, that's what this film is ultimately about. You know, it's just, you know, but where are we lost be, our identity. Where are we going to be ultimately? Where are we going to really look for sources of identity? Are we going to begin to pinpoint Mm-hmm. Uh, sources of identity, or is it just going to be every man for himself? You know, do you think? It, question. Do you think of it as? Could you, you compare it to say? From, say that's like 1995. Yeah. Do you think of it as the as specifically being about like? Is this an American film? Mm-hmm. Do you think about it as specifically being about like the current sort of climate in America in 2020, or do you think of it more as being psychological and less politically? 
I or think driven? it's I think it's more psychological and uh-huh. less politically driven. I mean, I think the subtext safe, could be there. Safe wasn't the, su- the yeah. I, I, it's been I forever say, a little since more I've like safe. safe. Yeah, safe, I mean, there was commentary the, about AIDS. AIDS is what yeah. I was. Yeah, and I think movies of just about like weird illnesses or unexpected symptoms flaring mm-hmm. up, and you don't understand what's happening to your body. That to me really gets to me so, because I experienced it. So you don't necessarily think that this is like the way that safe is tying itself or uh, subtextually to a specific idea. I don't think or, so. You know, it's like I can see what you're saying, no, like, especially in the post Me Too movement. Right. I, I can see maybe there's a subtext there, and you know I won't give away what happens, but. By the end, you get you, you get a sense of closure that that's very different from safe. It's not this. It's not the same arc. The, it's not the same well, character. If there's closure arc. at all. <laughs> there is closure yeah. essentially. Like both, like both films definitely speak to the issue of repression. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, and and uh, uh, they have different. Let, shall we say different uh, ideas about repression? Mm-hmm. I, I think and and swallow. You know. That's really the, the where, where the rubber meets the road for me with quote weird cinema is if you're going to do something that offbeat, there's a lot of humanity infused into it. Thankfully, have, yeah, you have to infuse it with characters I care about, and you have to you have to do something with it. Yeah, uh, other than just do whatever you're doing for its own sake. Yeah, and it's interesting that this director Carlo Mirabella Davis, the only other film they've done is a documentary on the swell season after they broke big with once. Wow. Which is, I, I would never expected that. Cause I was, <laughs> when, when, when did that come out? Like two, 2011. 2011. So that was a big deal when it came out. Yeah. Sure. Sure. Yeah. So, and he hasn't made a, f- a film since then. No. As he's very interesting in television, just or? like he's done a couple of shorts, but huh. I'm, I'm curious to see about where he goes from here. And I'm certainly going to follow Haley Bennett. Cause she really kind of blew me away in this film. Yeah. And, Haley Bennett's getting a lot of buzz in general out there in, yeah. in Indieville. I think, you're going to see her hired for some really interesting projects, and hopefully, she has that ability to pick great material. Yeah, I can, um, and I, I can see this breaking through. It's certainly something I couldn't write about for the website because, on a psychological level, it really got to me, and you felt a lot of empathy for this character. Uh, and it's just well done and very well shot, and ultimately, kind of a satisfying experience. With even though it's very unpleasant to watch at times. So, uh, man, I might have to. Yeah. It's, I might have to get a hold of that distributor yeah. for that link again. Yeah, it's and it's also, I believe, on Amazon if you want to give it a rent. Cool. Yeah. So I so it's been a month since we recorded, and I've had trouble like picking what movie to talk about. Um, I did want to briefly mention the seventy millimeter film festival happening in the music. Yes, box. please yeah. do. I got a pass to that, so I'm I'm Woo. seeing everything. I uh, on Friday I saw. It was great. Every time, every screening of 2001, uh, theatrical screening of 2001 is great because there is someone in the audience who it's their first time. I know. And <laughs> on Friday, it felt like either there were a lot of people who it was their first time or had not seen it in years and years and years. And the thing that this audience in particular did not remember was that there's a horror movie in the middle. Right. I think, I think 2001 has this uh, reputation as it's like it's the ultimate art film it has so many big ideas it's science fiction really grappling with what humanity is and like beyond all that it's like it's a movie about a killer robot <laughs> it's a really good movie about a scary yeah. killer robot so like it was great sitting in the audience and um like the they hal detects the part failing they bring it in they're like no the part's fine and hal's like huh well, I guess you, one of you guys made a mistake because I'm a computer and I can't make a mistake. <laughs> but I wouldn't worry about it. And then they go, 
Hmm. Okay, that's fine, Hal. Anyway, can I talk to you in the pod? And they go into the pod, and they are there. He can't listen in on them, and they're having like a private conversation. Like, look, if Hal's failing, like we might need to get rid of him. And there's a shot. It's a like close up of their lips, and he's reading their lips through the window. And then it just goes shoot. It's like a hard cut to intermission and everyone in the audience lost their minds it's one of the great like just like just when shit's getting real we're gonna make you wait 15 minutes <laughs> go go to the bathroom yeah. what do you think's gonna happen next you better ruminate on what's gonna happen next in the second half of this movie well because everybody's thinking about that right now because they have alexa right exactly in the corner. <laughs> no that movie that movie totally holds up and uh, and again like I'm afraid I can't play the bangles for you, Dan. <laughs> Especially on the uh, on on the big screen because it because of the pace of it, you really want to just like look at every single detail. Every single the shots are so long that you're just like you're astounded at these models and everything, and it really lets you watch it. So anyway, seventy millimeter. It's like the Music Box Private Print. They play it from time to time. They have a bunch of screenings to 2001. You should go out and see it. It is true if you haven't seen 2001 and 70 mil. You've not you've not seen it, right? And they're very they're, that, that sounds really elitist and nerdy. That's just the truth. Mm-hmm. It is. I completely agree. And, I mean, there's even, so much to see, even if you have like, in the weeks to come. Every subsequent time you watch it, it's because it's just it's the kind of movie that invites you to ruminate on ideas and stuff. So every time you watch, it's a little different than the last time you watched it. Yep. Um, but I actually want to talk about a movie we want that I watched. Basically, immediately after we recorded our last podcast, mm. uh, Portrait of a Lady on Fire, oh, oh, which is gosh. a movie that a lot of our listeners already know about because they sent in their 2019 year-end lists and it was on a lot of them. So mm-hmm. apparently there were a lot of people who went out to TIFF or whatever festivals this played and yeah. got a chance to see it. I think it opened in, in New York and L.A. maybe a little did it really? I think so. I thought yeah, it I did. wonder why it would open in New York and L.A. and then wait like two months. Yeah, that was odd. Um, at any rate, uh, it's... I, so I saw it, and it is – I was like, okay, the thing about queer film that picks up steam and gets like sort of audiences into them is that they're almost never about queer culture. They're always about an individual queer person who is repressed in some way, and they're like it's – a, it's, a clo- it's a story of being in the closet. It's a story about the fear of coming out. It's a story of repression in some way. Um, it's a story about sort of for, forbidden desire and the movies that are actually about like people who are out and living their lives and it, that go into the details of what it's like to be in that community never break through. And it, and it can be a little frustrating. So like when a movie like this gets a lot of buzz, my thought is always, okay, fine. <laughs> I'll watch another one. Like if you're going to do queer yeah. historical stories, that is, that is queer history. It's sort of like, you can't really do black history without talking about racism, without mm-hmm. talking about colonialism, without talking about these things. Like, yeah. Um, so it's, I'm not necessarily opposed to it, but I definitely went in skeptical. Um, especially because the trailers, I was just like, okay, very typical, Forbidden desire romance. It's the kind of movie Miramax would have made in the mid nineties. Very French, very sensual. So the thing about this movie is that it is actually not sort of, it's not very wishy washy about like, all right, here are the tropes we're hitting. It's super focused. So, and also that is actually a, uh, only a, a certain section of the movie is about that forbidden desire because, the first the, because 
you get to the second act and then all of a sudden these people have no guardians around them and they can just be whatever they want to be. And in the movie opens up considerably. So it's about a, it's about a, um, a noble woman, a young noble woman who needs her portrait painted. Cause um, she's about to get, she's about to get married off to yeah. some noble man in Italy. And he wants to see what she looks like. Sure. Claire it's like the marriage. typical, uh, typical procedure or whatever. So, they had someone else try to paint her portrait, but she didn't want her portrait to be painted. So they hired this uh, female artist and said, "You just pretend to be her walking companion, and we'll and but in secret you'll paint the portrait." And so what I thought was going to be the entire plot of the movie, which is they grow to fall in love with each other, and then she finds out that she's been betrayed, and that they blow up, and then that's like the dramatic climax of the movie or whatever. That's what I thought the whole movie was. That's just the first 30 minutes. And those first 30 minutes even are more interesting because – okay. So male gaze is a term that is used to describe the way women are shot in film over the course of the history of film. And the history of film is dominated by straight men. Not all men, not all straight, but generally it is straight men who are making films, uh, no matter what country you're in, it's generally straight men making films. Including the beloved Blue is the Warmest Color, which you know, had <laughs> right. controversy. I, as which a I, have not, I have not seen that film, um, so I can't really speak on that. Yeah. But male gaze is, like, describes something, that a trend that has happened over like a century of film. Female gaze is not really a thing because there isn't that same sample base. You really can't look at all the films made by women and draw similar kinds of conclusions. But wow, does this film lay the groundwork? So, so this is the thing. So when I say this movie is about female gaze, this, I, I say that knowing that female gaze is not an equivalent to male gaze. And it's actually probably a poor phrase to describe what I'm talking about, but it is all about, um, because she is this artist, she's looking at her and it Mm -hmm. is all about staring at this actor and her face. And it's all, and it's very sexy and it's very erotic but it, all of the arrows comes from the idea of like seeing the person sort of break through the the actor uh, who plays the noble woman. Um, God, I can't remember the name. Is it it's, is it Heloise uh, who plays the? I can't remember the names of the characters, but uh, I think the actor is uh, Adele Han- Hanel. Yes, the the one that's being painted, I yes. believe, is Adele. So she's this really beautiful woman with like really striking eyes and sharp features. And you and she's very severe for a lot of the movie because she doesn't want to be married off. And she's just in a situation like she just left a convent on uh, just an unsuccessful stint in a convent doesn't really want to be there. And then you see like little glimpses of a smile. You see like a little bit of her sense of humor you see. And then that's where all of the erotic power comes from. Whereas traditionally in film, when you're talking about male gaze, you're talking about the camera starting at the legs and then going up to the head. This is all about the face. It's all about the person behind it. Um, So that's the first act, which is the stuff that you see in the trailer. And you're like, okay, this is going to be a typical movie. Second act, when no one's around, you suddenly just get this really fun hangout movie, which you would never expect. (laughs) In like All historical queer movies kind of have to be sullen and miserable and tragic because that's the rules. But like... You really are blessed with this great 40 minutes in the middle where you, you just get to hang out with these people and they just get to be themselves. They don't have to be like, well, this is what a woman is. I, you know, they, there's, a, there's a servant uh, woman who is, who's with them and she, you know, its class is very stratified. But once they're to get all together and there's no one telling them how to behave, they can just sort of all hang out you know, as people. 
Um, and it's, and it's really this really surprising, fascinating moment, um, where the movie becomes something very different than what is prescribed by this kind of story. Um, and I thought all the actors were really great. I loved watching these people interact. Yeah. Well, I don't know about you, but you know, when you watch a great romance, often great romances are communicated on film through singular moments. We think of uh, the montage in Casablanca leading up to the scene with the plane and the, the scenes in the bar, the, the, that, that that gives us sort of a plat, a platen, if you will, a pattern um, for how we want to interpret romance. But but if you want to look at romance as something that is self-sustaining, then it has to do with the whole of the individuals involved. And this film, you know, is is centered around two actors, three if you want to include the servant uh, girl, and I would. Which I, I she's, she's she's terrific. She's, yeah. she's terrific in it. Where you have that sense of always being present to the other person, and I think gazed female gaze. It is entirely what this movie is about. When you look at the way that shots are positioned, um, I mean, you haven't even mentioned my favorite scene in the movie, which is the scene where they go to the field. Yeah, of course, that's uh, that's incredibly that's, memorable. Oh my gosh, that crazy uh, song that they all get together and sing, and it's, yeah, the way it's mixed, you can tell that it's like a choir as opposed to just women walking around. A, it like it suddenly has this otherworldly quality because of the way that the singing is recorded and stuff. Is fantastic. Uh, I like. I love their, the card game they're playing. When I grew up, it was called Egyptian Rat Screw. I don't know if it has different <laughs> names in, in Houston in, in 19, French. It would sound wow. far more yes, elegant. Yes, absolutely. In, in, in Houston in 1994, that was Egyptian Rat Screw. Like that's really fun. Uh, but the other thing about it is, it is about like we. Okay, so we're in a moment now where everyone who cares about film has more or less agreed that the. A male-dominated field is not just stifling creatively, but it's also leading to really toxic, fucked-up shit that needs to be – like, we need to have more women in power because we need to have checks and balances so, like, that sort of shit doesn't happen. And so, like, everyone has sort of agreed in some way or or another, like, okay, it's good that there are more women making films of all kinds. It's good there's women making – superhero movies it's good there's women making these kind of movies it's good you know there's women making no budget indie movies like we just need more women artists and stuff like that but you're still in a world where like um my brain doesn't work the way it should uh who directed selma uh ava ava duvernay yes so we're still in a world where like the best case scenario for ava duvernay after making an incredible film like selma is like what movie is Disney going to give her? You know, we're still in a world where it's like, okay, you can make, you can make your weird, uh, you know, you can make your Harley Quinn movie, but like, it's still got to be this, this, and this. We got, you know, we have yeah, these the, characters. The director these, of the writer, uh, Chloe Zhao, I guess, is she doing a superhero thing now? Yeah, she's got a, she's got a Marvel show <laughs> called The well, Eternals. And the question about a question odd. about that too. And I, I think it's. I think you're really hitting on something because the question about that for all of us, men, women, everyone, is being able to have a variety of people out there making movies because some of those movies are going to be great 
some of those movies are going to be not so great. Some of those movies are going to be really preachy and polemic. Some of those movies are going to approach their subjects with more subtlety and and um, intellectual honesty and um, emotional honesty. And I think that you know that's really one of the things about Portrait of a Lady on Fire. It's so emotionally honest. Um, it's it, it doesn't just rest on the moment where these two women get together and they have sex and they express romantic infatuation for one another. It, it, it follows that whole idea with way more depth. Mm-hmm. Right. But I mean, even in the past you would have like, okay, you're a female filmmaker. You have to make a movie that we think a female filmmaker should make. Exactly. Cause we're still the men in charge. And like this movie is explicitly about an artist who paints the way that she is told portraits must be painted exactly. and completely doesn't do her subject justice. And then once she is given a chance to do it again, her own way, she's able to be more honest. And like you talk about like the sex scene in this movie, like the big sort of sexual close up of the body is like a, a scene of them, like of her, like fingering her armpit. Like, like it's all of these, yeah. there are these, there are these, there is nudity in the film, but there's no like, you know, like not a money shot, erotic sexual reveal of breasts or of anything like that. Yeah. It's, it's always just like, it's, it's viewed from a perspective that you would never get if someone who isn't that was in charge and telling them the kind of movie they make. And that's, so there's like almost a metatextual element of like, this is about the joy of being a woman around other women, able to express the fundamental truths of being ourselves without having people telling us not, you know, the, in this case, it's a matriarchal sort of force who's saying, no, you have to be a lady. You have to marry this man and stuff. But like, like where we can finally be separate from that and we can be ourselves. And then the fact that, and then again, you do still get sort of the tragic, uh, the tragic ending. You still sort of get this, um, but like it means so much more than it ever would because you actually understand what's lost. It's mm-hmm. not just, isn't it sad that these two people who love each other can't be together. You understand the actual enormity of what is lost uh, in that final shot, that really slow zoom in on the face, which I'm, I'm not going to say any more than that, but like, yeah, that's powerful. Like the reason that has so much power is because we've spent those 40 minutes in the middle understanding what it could be like yeah. and what it isn't like. Well, what it's like to live in a world where people tell you who you have to be. Right, exactly. And so like this movie is really brilliantly structured in and sort of subversive of the movie I thought it was going to be. And that was a great delight. But also on top of that, it's a gorgeous looking movie. The performances are incredible. Now, yeah, this is a director I would like to cover soon because Celine Sciamma is, you know, has gotten acclaim for, you know, uh, girlhood, girlhood and tomboy were both acclaimed films that she made in the past. So like, I'm definitely going to see him. Shame on me for not seeing those movies for thinking like, well, they're probably not for me or whatever. Like, no, I'm I'm an idiot. I should have seen girlhood when everyone said girlhood was great. You know, um, I remember seeing water lilies, but it's been a while. Maybe even, I think I saw it after I saw, um, the Lucas Moodyson film. I love so much fucking him all. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, wanted to see other representations of that story. And, you know, it's, again, it's another coming of age love story and it's queer and it's beautiful and it's a very subtle film. Mm-hmm. It's not, it's almost like Portrait of a Lady on Fire only in high school. <laughs> well, you know, and it's probably worth, it's probably worth mentioning uh, uh, Adele, and forgive me for not knowing her last name, um, 
uh, who, by the way, just walked now, out of the Cesar Awards yes. when Roman Polanski was given his award. Uh, made She made a decision there. Uh, and um, she was prior to... Um, she was the star of Water Lilies, I believe. Yes. And she was involved with Celine uh, Siama, uh, the director. And they had broken up just before they started making or where they were in mid-production on this movie. Whew. So, wow. wow. Talk about using what's going on in your life to uh, make amazing art. Um, applause to all for their sacrifice. That sounds like a very hard thing to do. Absolutely. Yeah. So, yeah, this was definitely a movie that um, caught me by surprise. Um, there's, I've, there are enough instances where I see a trailer and I kind of can just clock exactly what the movie's doing. And, like, maybe it'll be a good version. Maybe it won't be a good version. But, like, I just kind of know I won't be surprised that I, you know, assume the same about this. And I was absolutely incorrect. Woohoo! Um, and, you know. I mean, for you know, it was a lot of people's 2019 list. For me, this is a 2020 film, and definitely a front runner uh, for film yeah. of the year for me so far. I definitely want to watch it again within the year. Hey guys, yeah, it's time. What time for what? Yeah, time to talk about the director of the episode, Mr. Guy, Guy Madden. Madden. Uh, no. From Winnipeg, love silent movies, Keyhole and Archangel, brand upon the brain. Oh, wow, such great short films, the heart of the world. That's me and my kitty. That's us on the couch We're watching more Guy Madden Trying to keep up with All of the crazy visuals Oh no, I've watched too much Like The Forbidden Room These films are really funny but they're also really sad. I said that his name is Guy Madden. Hey, Jim. Yeah. You should introduce Guy Madden. Who is he? Who is Guy Madden? Okay, so Guy Madden. <laughs> A few years ago. All right, I- listen up. <laughs> All right. I'm only going to say this once. <laughs> I am only going to say this once because if I did, it would be too repetitive. Mic, though, repetitive, like repetitive. Like everybody better listen. I know yeah. you got you got real serious all of a sudden, Guy Madden. Oh. First of all, not Guy Madden, which I thought maybe because he's, really? he's Canadian, it was like French Canada. Oh, Guy, maybe it's Guy instead of Guy. No, it's Guy, Guy Madden. Madden. Yeah, yeah. Uh, a few years ago, I kept hearing from folks like Bill Ackerman and Mike D'Angelo about this guy. Oh, literally, this guy. Um, <laughs> and. <laughs> Uh, it was around the time The Forbidden Room came out. And so I sat down to watch this thing, and I had no idea what to think. I was like, what is this? I've never seen anything like this before. 
it's really messing me up in the, in a, in a great way. Uh, and so I, I kind of live for that like WTF kind of experience sometimes with cinema. I'm like, I don't know what to make of this. I don't know how to compartmentalize it. I have no idea how to make sense. And there's not like cohesive storylines going on. So it was just like a challenge, but something that I found really appealing, uh, especially on a visual level and, you know, aesthetics we're going to get to with this director. And then I watched my Winnipeg and I was like, Whoa, I was even more impressed and kind of awestruck by the way he told the story of this town that he grew up in. And we're going to get more into detail as to what makes that film kind of special. Uh, unfortunately, more recently throughout the course of about of a month or so, I found it a little difficult to binge on Guy Madden. <laughs> and it's not to say like, I'm not a fan because I would consider myself a fan, but not an avid enthusiastic. Oh my God, this is one of my all time favorite filmmakers now. And for context, the last episode did was Anthony Mann, which is like the most bingeable, like 70 minute, perfectly yeah. constructed noir, like no fat. Like I wanted to keep going. Exactly. Like, we could have done a part two. This is not quite the same kind of filmmaker. Yeah. So, I mean, I didn't grow into the huge fan that I kind of hoped I would, but it was just maybe a little goes a long way. I mean, certainly watching a bunch of his movies in a row, felt a little jarring <laughs> just because I'm not used to this kind of cinematic language, you know, and like I mentioned to you, I'm not well versed in silent cinema and it's something that I, I'd like to get more experience in. Uh, Cause really outside of the things they showed the music box of horrors, I haven't really like dived deep into it. Um, I mean, obviously we did an episode on Buster Keaton, but that's a whole other world. Um, but what I really like, at least, is this sad absurdity he's got going on in his films. There's like, it's like projections of the subconscious. And that sort of comes from my love of something like Eraserhead, which clearly Guy Madden is a fan of. Uh, so, you know, projecting the subconscious, but filtered through all Hollywood. There's a lot of artifice. There's just a lot of just visual daring things going on here. It's not always cohesive. It's not always satisfying. It doesn't always hit me on an emotional level, but at the same time, I really do get the impression that guy Madden is psychologically honest and he pours his id entirely onto, onto the celluloid in, in, in a way that I find kind of enveloping. Uh, but at the same time, like I said, I don't think it's a director that I would recommend you know, binging on within a week or even a month. I, I think I can handle him in smaller doses over time. That's interesting that you put it that way, because I think that for me, you know, if I think of filmmakers that I would put him on a shelf of uh, David Lynch or uh, even uh, Crispin Glover uh, or people who are doing pretty weirdly experimental things with cinema, mm-hmm. um, I think you could binge David Lynch Oh, yeah, and I have. <laughs> uh, and who hasn't? But I think that he is not just playing around with an aesthetic. He's keyed into an art form that helps him to express himself. Yeah. And that makes any artist interesting. Um, you know, again, you know, we mentioned Michael Bay <laughs> earlier. That would be the polar opposite oh, yeah. of, of Guy, Guy Madden, you know. Uh, it, even if it's not hitting you emotionally, it's definitely hitting you psychologically. I think so. And it certainly invaded my dreams. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes. Oh, I want to hear about that. Yeah. No, no, kind of no, dr- no, no that's okay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
No, 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 no incestual dreams. Just like uh, yeah, I was know, gonna say, you know, depending just, on which movie invaded your dreams, that can be a good yeah, time or a real bad one. Cowards, been, cowards <laughs> bend the knee. Oh boy, yeah. <laughs> no uh, glass, glass legged ladies dancing mm. around. So I have a, an interesting uh, sort of. I, I I'd not seen any Guy Madden movies before we started prepping for this. So before like early February uh, of this year, I had not seen any Guy Madden movies. I was vaguely familiar, like you know. You've heard cult, the name. Cult filmmaker. Yeah. I worked at a video store where we had all of his movies, so I was familiar with the poster. You know, I was familiar with the titles and stuff like that. Um, at some point, and when I was working at a video store, I put Tales from Gimli Hospital on in the background, but that's not exactly when you're at work and you have to do other stuff and it's just sort of on the background. That's not a movie you can just listen to. <laughs> no, fact, no. There's not really much to listen to in that film. But um, so Guy Madden is the filmmaker for me that has the absolute widest gap between how much I like the artist and how much I like his work. <laughs> Which is to say, Guy Madden, I, I started reading the book, uh, I forget I forget the title and the author, but there's a there's a very good book on Guy Madden. Uh, William Beard's book. Is it is it William Beard's book? It's from the, it's one from the library, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, I couldn't get to it because you have it. Right. Yeah, there's <laughs> one in the Chicago Public Library system and I took it, so you couldn't get it. But um I, I enjoyed reading this book and learning about the way Guy Madden works, and that to me was very integral to being able to access it at all because when you deal with people who make uh, you know, experimental sort of narrative films when you deal with people who are working with tons and tons, like extremely postmodern. There's a lot of other sources he's drawing on. He's this sort of magpie of influences that he sort of smashes all together into yeah. his movies. Um, there is something intimidating that it's like, Oh, this is going to be too intellectual. This is going to be, uh, I, you know, I'm, I'm someone, I barely graduated high school. I am not educated in any real meaningful way. Um, other than the things I've pieced together for myself, which is not all that much. So like when you deal with really intellectual filmmakers, that's usually means I'm not going to be able to get into it. Um, and with Guy Madden, it was very helpful to learn that the way he works is very sort of quickly and very instinctual and very, yeah, I um, get that impression. He is really, when you say he pours his into the movies, like that is the thing that makes a Guy Madden movie, a Guy Madden movie is that there isn't really a filter uh, no. saying like, you know, like, well, this makes sense. Is an audience going to follow me from point A to point B? You know, is he they don't feel like he can, you know, he stopped and spent a year working on a script and considered what the final product would be. They feel like he tricks someone into giving him money and he's like, oh shit, let's go, let's go, before they realize what they've done. Yeah. They're not going to get their money back on this one. That might have been the case with my Winnipeg. We can do anything we want. People know my name, but they're going to lose money on this. (laughs) He's not, he's not the sort of David Lynch, like protecting his sort of eccentric uh, uh, persona at Mm. all costs where like, it feels like sometimes David Lynch is just playing into uh, being David Lynch and just yeah. being enigmatic for its own sake because yeah. Yeah. that helps people view his movie. That helps people not come into his movies preconceived notions. And the interesting thing is, if you think about, for instance, uh, um, if you think about uh, again Crispin Glover, or if you think about Andy Kaufman, mm-hmm. they sort of become 
the artwork, right? Mm-hmm. You know, in 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 a certain way, and you, and and part of it is like, how is this real? Is this not real? And this, some this, of that, some yeah. of that with Guy Madden, though, it figures in because he does things like he'll do live readings. Uh, uh, or uh, he'll narrate his films when they're played in public. Mm-hmm. So there is that sort of like artist as art thing going on there. But um, to me, he's almost he's almost more of a, a of, of somebody who wants to collaborate with others and and put it out there on its own terms. Yeah, I think that's another important thing is that he. You know, almost all of his screenplays are collaborative efforts with, uh, you know, different people. He he gives people free range. He's he's definitely not someone who tells the actors exactly what to do. Like the actors kind of just get to figure out their performances for themselves. Um, so, like for me, learning about you know, he call, he refers to himself as like a garage band filmmaker, where it's like <laughs> part of what he does, part of what the thing that makes it appealing is that it's rough around the edges, and there's a lot of artists who really appeal to me who have that approach like you know like b thousand by guided by voices one of my all-time favorite albums partially because it sounds like every single track is recorded on different piece of equipment and yeah. it's just like a this, boom box at times yeah, yeah like it's very hodgepodge and messy and you know it's not pristine and that's what makes it appealing um and that actually inspired me um over christmas my sister um gave me her old uh, like Nikon camera that can shoot video and she bought me a uh zoom uh, sound recorder sort of microphone um and she was like all right you, sh- you, you want to make movies you should go make movies and and like it's the, it was a very intimidating objects to receive because i'm i don't know what to do with them and i'm like all right well i gotta get people together like what do i do where do i start or whatever and then once i saw Guy Madden, and once I saw a lot of his shorts, especially early shorts and stuff, mm-hmm. and realizing just how thin of a sketch that he will be willing to make a film out of, that inspired me to. I actually shot two short films last week. I I like am writing a script. Like I'm I'm much more active because it was almost like he gave me permission to just be like, look, <laughs> like it's gonna come together or it yeah, won't, yeah, but yeah. just do it. Like put it out there. Yeah, don't hesitate. Um, so I love Guy Madden as like a figure, as like. Oh, I'm so glad that an artist like Guy Madden exists. I really find his movies, his feature films, tedious. And I really don't enjoy them very much. Yeah, I can understand that. Some of the longer ones, I can, I can, can wear out their that. welcome. Yeah. I mean, dude has made 56 films of varying lengths. Right. That's wild. Yeah. When you think about it, I think that sometimes it's easier for cineasts, uh, people who, you know, let's face it, you sort of like work your way into loving movies we start out loving whatever we love as kids that leads us down the primrose path and then sooner or later you decide if you're gonna pursue difficult cinema and difficult Mm -hmm. cinema can mean different things to different people for me it's meant things like really really violent cinema um that that you know or exploitation cinema that people just sort of want to hold up as you know you know, we all know when we think of great cinema is like Casablanca or The Wizard of Oz, and then somebody wants to take the movies of Herschel Gordon Lewis and put them up there. Um, but also movies like last year, Marion Bad, and 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 movies that don't have straightforward narratives at all. Um, you know, and and and, and I think that that's you know La Grande Jette uh, would be another one. Or I'm sorry, I'm that's a painting. 
Very difficult painting. Le sans <laughs> a very difficult painting. Le sans soleil is that the one? Yes, yes, yes. That's yeah, the one. Yeah, yeah. That's the one I'm thinking of. I remember that around the time of that. I did that's watch... from the filmmaker of uh, Legetti, right? Yes. Okay. Yes. yes. Okay. Then the that one. Oh, that's why I did that. Is yeah. that Chris Marker? Is that the yes. one? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, it was around the same time that I watched my Winnipeg. That's when I first watched Outer Space. Mm. Uh, Peter Shurkowski, that guy. And he's made a lot of really challenging short films yeah. that, again, I think if if I binged too much on in a row, I think I would, you know, I don't know, go, go crazy. Outer Space is like nine minutes, 12 minutes long or something right, like that. Right. I would but not like want avant garde Outer filmmaking. Space is one of my all time favorite films. I yeah. would not want to see an 80 minute uh, film right. <laughs> of that of that uh, approach. I think I think the thing about Guy Madden for me, and I I know that you two like Guy Madden more than me uh, to varying degrees. Um, so I don't want it to just turn into like being on the defensive. He's a filmmaker worth praising, even if I'm not particularly into him. The thing about Guy Madden for me is that he has severe limitations that are very apparent, which is that. You know, and he has, you know, he said in interviews, he's just like, I don't know, like, he likes really, really small sets um, because he doesn't really know how to light a big set. He doesn't, Mm. you know, he really likes the limitations of, of just like uh, a small, uh, you know, few number of characters in a small location and he can point a single light at them. And if it's this light is dead center, then it sort of fades off and it's dark on the side. And like that creates the sort of, um, flickering kind of look that he's going for and he doesn't and so there's that limitation where like for me Forbidden Room it's a movie that goes all over the place but everything more or less looks the same um, because it's yeah. all like super tiny artificial looking sets and I love the decomp effects I love the colors he finds I think that oh yeah that's outstanding but that's the sort of thing that I've gotten everything I'm going to get out of it five minutes in and then they get to the next problem, which is he's not particularly interested in telling stories, not in a traditional way, which is not in a dramaturgical like, you know, like I'm going to give you this piece yeah. of information and then you're going to be intrigued by this piece of information and want to know what happened. But then you're going to learn about this part of this backstory and it's going to change the way you thought about it. it that's not really he doesn't have like traditional story structure. Yeah, I, get, I, get, I get lost. I get lost. Are we going to talk now or we're going to talk about specifically? Yeah, yeah. We're going to talk about music in the world. We should probably get into it because that actually is more straightforward and more traditional a story than a lot of his other features. Yeah. Well, and. And, and here was the thing about my experience of saddest music in the world. Mm-hmm. I I grew up like a lot of a lot of people did, watching Siskel and Ebert on television, and I vividly remember uh, them reviewing lots and lots of movies, and this is one of them. And you know, this is not a movie I was going to get to see as a kid in South Bend, Indiana, at my you know local multiplex. Um, and catching it all these years later, the thing that struck me is. I've repeatedly had the experience when I watch certain people's work. Bergman is another one where I hearken back to the things that made me love cinema to begin with. Sure. Um, for me, that was uh, universal monster movies, which are rich in atmosphere and sometimes kind of light on plot in the way that they, they approach plot. Also, uh, they can be very arch. And while those movies get a lot of attention because of the amazing performances of people like Boris Karloff 
and Bella Lugosi and the makeup of Jack Pierce, and sometimes the direction uh, by people like James Bale and uh, James Whale and Carl Freund. There's a sense in which those films really just hit the high points of what can happen psychologically uh, of what you create when you put a light on something and point a camera at it. And then you move the light around or you jiggle it or you darken that. And suddenly you have, you, you, you have scenes and you have a movie. Um, and you're hitting on these high points emotionally, psychologically, through the aesthetic that aren't necessarily attached specifically to the narrative. Right. And I find that fascinating about Guy Madden that I can be watching one of his movies and be reminded of so many other great moments I've experienced in the movies um, and that I'm clearly in the hands of somebody who believes that cinema does that by fiat, really. It just is. That is what cinema is. Yeah, uh, we can be it, moved on just by the visuals alone. Yeah, you know, I don't know, or by a shadow here, or a or a, a close up yeah. this way, or by grain. I, I mean, I I don't want to get into debating the universal horror films necessarily, but like, I don't know if I necessarily agree that the visuals are divorced from the narrative. Um. I, I feel like the you reason mean, you mean in the Universal Monster movies, yeah, like I reason I respond to Frankenstein is because that first shot is that it, the first shot is, I mean, the whole thing is very carefully lit in a way that a Guy Madden movie is not carefully lit, um, and then and because they have production values that Guy Madden movies can never have because no one is ever going to spend the 1931 equivalent of Frankenstein's budget on a Guy Madden movie that so like. There is so there is a sort of a craft to the set or whatever, and then the it's very careful about the first image you see is that hanging body, and then you see the men outside the fence, and they clearly have something up, but you don't know what it is yet. And Whale is a master of moving from shot to shot, right? His and reveal sure. of the monster. So there, for so to yeah. me, like the logic is the thing that makes there. There are uncanny aspects. There are things that the way that. Ed, Whale will edit into the the monster's face on the reveal, the but, 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 like closer, 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 like those edits. Like there are things about it that aren't necessarily strictly narrative driven, but because they exist in the context of this hmm. narrative that I have been following, that's what gives them meaning. And like, you know, Dario Argento is a filmmaker who I barely ever respond to because I find the stories and characters in his movies totally forgettable and non compelling. And so when you get to some really elaborate, interesting shot, I can sort of appreciate that a lot of effort went into it, but it doesn't really move me at all. Well, and what I mean, what I mean in in hearkening back for me to the Universal Monsters, which is one of the places I learned to love film, is it's very interesting to watch the difference between, say, Frankenstein in 1931 and The Wolfman in 1942. The Wolfman is a far more elegantly filmed uh, um, story uh, with more characters who have more to do that their their dialogue interconnects more in mm. frankenstein it's very uh, event driven and you can tell we're not that far removed from silent cinema and i think what guy madden is doing in his movies is he's he's going all the way back to that arch sort of silent cinema days where um 
he it's it's almost like it's almost like you could take a Guy Madden movie and you could um you would say exactly I think you hit it on the head earlier they aren't fleshed out. Mm-hmm. They just are. Right. Yeah. And 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 the compelling aspect of that is that they're compelling at all. And the things about them that are compelling uh are often quite evocative. I mean, my Winnipeg, I think, is probably the great example. Yeah. I would agree with that. But I, I even even within the saddest music in the world, the idea of a Eurovision sort of contest about emoting sadness to a roaring crowd and then diving into a pool of beer. Like he has so many like in all of his films, whether they're shorts or features, there are so many fascinating surrealist ideas there's the mm-hmm. in uh, in like tales from gimli hospital there's the marriage where the priest is on the other side of the river and stuff like that there are all of these ideas in them um that are very rich and 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 strike you as very strange and very evocative and really those are that's that is the fuel of the movies for me yeah is, and that's when i get excited moments about like that yeah. is, is that they is that you know you see the glass legs but then you see the glass legs filled with beer and it's, you know, and she's, and she's yeah. dancing with them. And like the yeah. idea that, you know, the, 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 the tragedy that this hinges on is this car wreck where he cut off the wrong leg and now she has zero legs as opposed to, you know, one and a half or like, yeah, little, little, little influence from Buñuel too. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. I, and that's a filmmaker I'm excited to explore too, because his films, at least a couple that I've seen often, thrive on a lack of logic right you know and i think you some know, I, of them a profound lack of logic yeah yeah no definitely I, the, the argument i i once got into with matt gamble about paul thomas anderson i think we were talking about inherent vice is that he, his he felt that like he is such a piss poor storyteller he doesn't he doesn't invest in the story or the narrative to where things make sense things go from a to b to c and I'm like that's what's exciting about watching this movie that i don't know if Joanna Newsom's character is real or not, or if she's just a figment of Joaquin Phoenix's imagination. To me, like that's, I get a thrill from that experience alone. Well, and watching a filmmaker struggle, watching him struggle to create it out of what seems whole cloth Mm -hmm. that he only has this barest of essentials. And then suddenly you still care about it. Yeah. And Um, I, 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 I wouldn't say I'm moved by the saddest music in the world, but there are moments where I'm like, wow, that's just so, so beautiful to see that. And I'd never seen anything like it before. I, I would say there are there are ideas. Yeah. In status. It's not necessarily like, oh, this was a great scene or this was a great moment of acting or anything. Because I think for me personally, like the acting across the board in all Guy Madden movies is bad in a way. Not in like in not in a, oh, it's stilted to make you think of the different style of silent film. Like I. I watched uh, what did I watch? One of what silent film did I watch? I watched Underworld, the uh, Joseph von Stromberg film, oh, okay. and like I think the performances in that are great. I think hmm. there are plenty of very good silent movie performances. The Lodger, and they're not yeah. they're not necessarily naturalistic, but mm-hmm. they're captivating. And I so like for me, for me, the acting in Guy Madden movies is just kind of bad, which is you know it is what it is. But like I do think there are moving ideas within saddest sure. music in the world. I do think the idea of if you look at it. As a satire of the entertainment industry, you look at it um, like you think about someone. This is something I think about a lot in terms of I, t- I tend to think of it in the most cynical 
approach, which is like if you think about My Chemical Romance or something like that, <laughs> their chief audience is teenagers. Now they are almost forty now, and they're getting up there, and they are, and they're singing songs directly to speak to the mopey teenager in all of us or whatever. And they're like emoting and they're pretending that they actually feel these things, even though it's very clear that they don't because you're a fucking rich 40 year old. Like you don't like when you sing about the, you know, this high school thing or whatever, like that's just not your life anymore. But are we saying that we think that we think the madness kind of glib? Yeah. I think this movie is about sort of there. I think it is about sort of the contradiction between the fact that the entertainment industry is an industry and it is full of cynical shit. And it is like, and every moving experience you've had, even, you know, uh, you have the, uh, the, uh, Serbian, uh, I forget the character's the name. The cello. Yeah. Um, yeah. who plays this year? Like, Roderick. He, like he is coming from an absolutely real place. That song that he is playing is it's about know, the loss of his a, son. Yeah. The loss of his son. And like the, the divide it put between him and his wife, you right. know, and like that is a that is a that is true mourning that he is doing, and he and he's the and it's like he might be sort of the exception in there as far as he is absolute actually representing his true pain on stage, but the context around it is such a ridiculous uh, sideshow. Well, have yeah, you ever, a little bit of a circus. Have you ever found yourself like watching a movie, um, just because it was on TV and? Uh, uh, say it's an old melodrama from the 1940s or 30s, and uh, you're sort of halfway curious about what's going on, and you find yourself watching it all the way to the end, um, even though you know objectively it's not a very good movie. And I think that with Madden, what keeps me from being able to say that he's glib is he takes that to an uh, uh, to an art form. He creates these totally arch, improbable situations that are the stuff of melodrama. I mean, the relationship between the Roderick and his brother and his ex-wife and the son's oh, yeah. heart and the Could jar. be a Douglas Sirk movie. <laughs> yeah, it, it, it's really weird. Um, and um, he creates a visual aesthetic around that that makes me question why I find that that stuff compelling. In rather, the first place, in, in, any, first in place, any film. In any mm-hmm. film, Yeah. So, and, but you don't think that that's him sort of uh, being glib about that? No. In fact, I think that that's, uh, in his case, the result of a lot of blood, sweat, and tears. I think he really cares about what are in his films um, in a way that a, that a lot of the people that made those other films we're talking about uh, d- didn't. Now, certainly there were people like Cirque that did. Yeah. Um, or Man Ray, you know. Um, but then there were just tons and tons and tons of guys who just showed up for work every day in the studio system and just churned those pictures out with no heart sure. at all. For me, that would be more like slasher movies than melodramas, but it's the same thing where a lot of those were very cynically made and they're just like, well, there's a there's a Canadian tax loophole right now, so we might as well crank one out. <laughs> yeah, and then, let's take advantage but, of that. But because you, but because the structure of a slasher movie involves so much just downtime, hanging out with the characters, you can sort of still insert yourself and think about and like sort of be sucked into their you know lives before an axe comes down their head or whatever. So yeah, no, I abs- I absolutely feel the same way. Yeah, yeah, that's the that's the weird thing to me about what he's doing is because when you look at those old melodramas. Um, in American cinema, they are full of 
really forgettable characters and they're full of really um, a lot. And I'm not talking about Cirque and those guys, but I mean, when you talk about these B programmer movies, uh, so many of them were just, they play like cardboard. Um, but you know, along comes this guy and he sort of demands that everything on screen be interesting and colorful. So, but when you watch the saddest music in the world, are you invested in these characters and their stories and their and their drama and their and their struggles? I am interested to see what happens to them. Yes, I think that the um, you know I was very interested that, for instance, in saddest music in the world. Can I give a spoiler? Please do. You know that Isabella Isabella Rossellini doesn't die. Well, why doesn't she die? She's a pretty awful human being in a lot of ways. And I think that if you look at the internal logic of that story that he's telling, there are reasons. And you know, you look at you look at other movies like uh, I'm reminded of whatever happened to Baby Jane, which centers around an accident and um, mm. uh, uh, how you know who the bad guy is in that story. Um, you spend a lot of time in this movie being asked to follow the interests of these characters. And I'll agree with Jim. I don't always find it a hundred percent emotionally compelling, but I am interested in what my ideas of justice are there or what my ideas of, um, what my ideas of, uh, how I want the story to proceed are versus where, you know, uh, uh they're taken. And I do enjoy the sense of humor of guy Madden's. There's films. a lot of humor in there. Yeah. And as a huge Kids in the Hall fan, watching Mark McKinney in this is kind of a joy in of itself, even if the performance isn't necessarily like memorable on a comedic level. It's just he's just Mark McKinney being weird and villainous throughout the entire film. There's a little Venn diagram where like the weirdest kids in the hall and the most accessible guy Madden is like, <laughs> yeah. the same sensibility. I yeah. felt that way. I didn't finish Keyhole because I was just like I, couldn't, I, I can't yeah. I can't take Nobody this. Nobody fault you I for not wanting to binge Guy Madden. Dude. I can't do uh, but Keyhole. But like when no. Kevin McDonald appears in Keyhole it felt the same way where oh, it's like oh this yeah. feels like a, this feels like a kids in the hall sketch where it's like it's hilariously just surrealist noir or whatever. Yeah. Maybe maybe I just click with the Canadian sensibility, mm-hmm. like SCTV, Kids in the Hall, but to, just this, you know, I, I I chuckled at a line, you know, like if if you're sad and you like beer, I'm your lady. I don't know, something like that just works on me. Yeah, so, <laughs> you know? uh, so on the simplest level. So like I, I sort of I thought I don't, I don't remember if I actually got to this or not when I was sort of talking about the thing that makes Guy Men a little more accessible to me, which is that he does has a sense of humor and he seems very yeah. down to earth about the kind of stuff he's making and. You know, and uh, and he does, and it is these movies don't take themselves extremely seriously. Uh, uh, I, mean, I don't believe they do it at any rate. I, I, don't, don't, think they, I don't think they do. Either. I mean, I, especially by the time you get to something like Forbidden Room, there oh, is yeah. stuff that is just like comedy sketches almost. Pretty um, much. I, do, but there's something central there. He is trying to get at. Sure, that I think it's, he takes it's, seriously. It's not all like a, it's not all like a David Wayne sort of a piss take or whatever. Right. Where it, right. There's no emotional content there. But like, so I was curious, and I think this could be just a big thing that would separate me from someone who likes Guy Benton films, which is like, generally speaking, do you find his films funny? Yeah, I do. Yeah, I do. I mean, I, they're, they're they're absurd. I think that's they're what got to me about the Forbidden yeah. Room. Really. Yeah. I mean, it's. Watching it again, I'm like, yeah, it doesn't need to be this long. I'll admit that. Uh, but at the same time, 
it did feel like a free flowing, you know, subconscious series of sketches that most of them kind of worked on me. You so know? yeah, and the think, appearance of Udo Kier doesn't hurt. I think pretty much all of my complaints about Guy Madden would would no longer exist if I thought that his films were funny. But I just think my sensibility is different, and I just mm-hmm. they I rarely laughed watching any of his movies. I rarely ah. like I I have a little bit of amusement and. Certainly there are interesting ideas that catch me off guard, but mm-hmm. I just think my sense of humor just wasn't there. So it was just yeah. one of those things that's like, if you don't find forbidden room funny, that's going to be a, no, tough. that totally makes sense. And I understand um, it. Well, is guy mad one of those filmmakers that you ought to watch with a bunch of other people? It's I, I did, possible uh, that. Okay. So that's another important thing about watching on the big mu- screen. Status music you know? in the world in particular. So part, so much of guy Madden's stuff when, I don't think we've really talked that much about the aesthetic of his work, which is he's not just drawing on these uh, silent movie sort of uh, plots and stuff. He is drawing aesthetically on not specifically the way silent films were made, but the way silent films were viewed in the later 20th century, which is to say on these sort of degraded 16 millimeter film prints on, you know, we have their, their most, most silent movies that were made no longer exist because they were, you know, destroyed or damaged or lost. And the ones that do exist rare, very rarely exist in a terrific condition. And so his movies are not just often, you know, monochrome black and white with color tints. Um, they also have sort of scratches on them. They have, uh, sort of faded images. Um, and, and, uh, where was I going? Not everything is always clear. Okay. Yeah. So the right. texture is so important to the aesthetic, the mm-hmm. texture, texture of, right. and these are films that were until I think keyhole was the first digital film he made. So these are films that he shot on celluloid and then processed. I mean, they were edited digitally and so mastered probably digitally. So that's a, that's a bit of a hybrid sort of a thing. But like, I feel with saddest music in the world, so much of it is, about the texture so much of it is about the look that when i watch it on a dvd that was released in year 2000 or something like that i feel like i'm not actually getting the full experience because Mm -hmm. the thing that is one of the most important aspects is lost by the resolution yeah the resolution is really weak for this one and it's hard to find it's not easily accessible via streaming it's something that i would think would be right for and i feel like if i saw a if i saw this on film when it was released would the would the overall result be mm-hmm. different just because I'm actually getting the aesthetic as intended? Well, yeah, it's possible. You're, yeah. And you're looking at it; the images are far larger. Yes. Um, I, I, I think, I think that's a, I think that's a really good observation. It's he's one of those filmmakers that it's really hard to judge his work because it's so iconoclastic, and I hate to use a word that everybody uses, but it absolutely applies to him. Yeah. No, I would agree with that completely. We can move on to my Winnipeg. I'm really curious to talk about it. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Because uh, Eber called it the 10th best film of the decade. Mm-hmm. You know, he he really strongly uh, recommended it to everybody and because it's like this docu what does he call it like a docu fantasia or something you know and he's basically just talking about his hometown but at the same time having these incredible recreations um of his family life in the, in this childhood home like to me this would be a dream idea to 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 put together and yet obviously you can't 
right. <laughs> because some people are no longer living. Um, but just like the attention to detail, his 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 narration throughout this, there's just it's a piece of history that, like I mentioned in my review initially, where you learn about a person's life, but you learn about a city's life. So you get the micro level, you get the macro level, you get a lot of different things, um, a lot of very memorable imagery based on legends and lore that you know may or may not have happened in Winnipeg. It's sort of up to the viewer to figure that out and do research if you want. Um, but I, I just find myself incredibly moved by everything in this film uh including the recreations with 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 his mother which is just like <laughs> so i want to say the thing that the um, the only content in guy madden movies that i find emotionally gripping is the autobiographical stuff specifically yeah. about the issues he has with his parents his father dying at a young age and his mother um having issues sort of being controlling like oh for sure obviously brand upon the brain is all that yeah um as well and like so there are sections of my winnipeg that i actually was totally absorbed in and and when they dovetailed with both the aesthetic the way it was shot and the sort of interesting strange surrealist ideas he has Mm -hmm. when all those three things are working at the same time it is like a revelation and it's absolutely incredible. So like in my Winnipeg, uh, what's the name of the fake TV show that his mom was the star? Of? Oh God, the man on the ledge, man on the ledge, man on the ledge. Yeah. Like that sequence, ledge man, ledge man. That's it. Ledge man. The <laughs> ledge man sequence of my Winnipeg is so brilliant. Um, and, and the premise, uh, like that being an expression of sort of the emotional, uh, you know, uh, borderline abuse or whatever that he suffered at the hands of his mother and stuff like mm-hmm. that. The idea of this television show where every episode there's a guy on a ledge and he, he's getting badgered by Madden's <laughs> mother <laughs> and then he comes back inside until he decides to go out again. Like those moments in this, in this movie are so good. Um, yeah. Well, and, and didn't, didn't that have something to do with his brother? Didn't one of, one of his brothers kill himself? And I don't know if it was explicitly said, I thought it was an accident, but I couldn't. Yeah. I couldn't be mistaken. Did he fall? Was that was that part of the idea? That's a good question. Hmm. It makes me wonder because his stuff is again, and and that's the weird thing to me about about um, about Guy Madden is saddest music in the world is utterly phantasmagoric. Oh there's, yeah, there's hardly anything about it that seems real or whatever. My Winnipeg plays it documentary almost completely straight until it doesn't. And then when it doesn't, it's like, what is going on? But, yeah. What's real? It's well, I mean, the reality thing, it is, beyond, it is, but it makes it is you all curious cont- about Winnipeg. Well, yeah. the, intro, the opening of it is the guy, he's finally leaving Winnipeg and he, it's like a dream sequence almost where mm-hmm. he's falling asleep on, on the train. train. So yeah. that does at least contextualize it as not being all on the up and up. So sure. like, this is a surrealist interpretation of the history of the city, of right. my history in the right. city. Um, but it does make you want to go and find out what's real. I did. I saw an interview with him where he talks about my Winnipeg, and he said uh, basically he did it because he feels like people in Winnipeg are so bad at remembering their own history, and hmm. that this was about um, trying to talk about the idea of what Winnipeg was 
Yeah, and it plays like memory pastiche in this way. In and this that's a that's way. a recurring motif in like all of his films, like Amnesia, yeah. and you know some cowards spend the, the past yeah. coming back and brand upon the brain is that as well. Like the the act of remembering is a big thing in his films. Yeah, I respond to that too. Um, the Hall Runner scene again is really amazing. The idea oh, that gosh. he's trying to recreate mm. some weird. It's you guess it's traumatic experience from his life where his mom is just obsessed with everything being neat and orderly. And then the added layer of the way that the actors he has hired to play him and his brother and his mother are not doing it correctly. And he yep. can't get them in order. <laughs> like that's another like great moment. And it's this thing that makes me wish I was watching like a Charlie Kaufman I mean, yeah. obviously, Charlie Kaufman as a filmmaker, there's a lot of stuff that he would not have gotten that Guy Madden can get to. Charlie Kaufman doesn't work in this this brand of surrealism. Mm-hmm. Um, but like, it reminds me of Michelle Gondry a little bit. But the yeah. thing about all yeah, of Michelle Gondry is a really interesting yeah. comparison. Yeah. But all of the stuff in the home, the recreation when she's on their deathbed and they're like, "We're not, we can't eat." Like all of that is so much more compelling than anything else in the film. That every time it went back to like. Oh, and then there was this elm on this street, and it was right in the middle of the street. And oh, we were, I like that stuff too. I was just like, I, "What about the horses getting frozen you didn't in the find river?" That stuff entertaining. In no, place. no, I, I, I found the there was a good that it was a good image. The horses frozen. Yeah, um, really but again, cool. like I laughed out loud when I saw the, the horse. <laughs> I, but I there was I got no. I got no emotional investment from any of it mm. or like the ghosts playing hockey and the building as it's collapsing, like that sort of thing. Like these are all interesting ideas on their own, but they don't have that sort of raw nerve, uh, sort of personal energy that the stuff in the home life does. Yeah. Do you feel then that you would put yourself probably in more of a Kaufman camp? I mean, how would you feel about somebody like a Michelle Gondry, um, or, or more surrealist I, film in general? I mean, I would have to, I would have to, pick two movies and and specifically and compare them. I don't think Michelle Gondry has ever done anything as personal as uh, my Winnipeg. No, certainly well, not. Probably, um, no, I mean, definitely I, not on me, that level. I, when I look at this movie, I can think of two examples. One, I like this movie more than, which is Terrence Davies of Time in the City, which is a very, if you're going to do the straightforward version of my Winnipeg, that is Terrence Davies talking about growing up in Liverpool. And it is archival footage. It is his narration. There is some new footage shot around <laughs> Liverpool and it is about him growing up, and it is just a sort of visual essay about – and there's no surrealist elements. There's no fantastical elements. Like cinematically, it's kind of – there's some interesting – like, oh, it's interesting archival footage. You don't see Liverpool from this era on film, and you see it. But it's it's kind of a dull movie because it doesn't have that energy and invention to it. It's very straightforward. So that I like less than my Winnipeg. A movie I like more than my Winnipeg, which granted is not uh, necessarily about childhood – uh, is Heart of a Dog by... Uh, See, that's what I was thinking, too. Lindsay yeah, okay. Anderson. Yeah. That, that's and, very interesting. Which, to yeah. me, that film has a... It has a focus tonally that uh, My Winnipeg doesn't. There are There's parts of My Winnipeg that feel more frivolous than others, and like Heart of a Dog feels like it's all... A, about the same tone, the same approach. And, she, touch, she touches on nine eleven and certain right, things. There's, there's, there's other bigger but makes aspects, it personal. but it's all... And so, like... And it's also all of a piece, and I think yeah. that's something that Madden can barely bring himself. That's that, to and do. that is the thing. And like when after my Winnipeg was the movie, as I was watching these guy Madden movies, I'm like, well, that didn't really click with me, but there was something interesting there. I've, I'm sure I'm going to see the movie that will settle in with me. Once I saw my Winnipeg, that was when I realized, oh, the 
sort of like hurried, uh, unfocused, uh, sort of messy nature of his filmmaking. That's like essential to the whole thing he does. Like, mm. I don't think he would know how to work any other way. I think that is like you sometimes all the things click together and sometimes they don't and you get more or less moments of inspiration from time. But I don't think there's any works that he's done where he has like really sat down and nailed exactly how it's going to look, how one shot's going to go into another. Yeah. That sort of, that's just not the way he works. And that's just like, that's, that's him as an artist. You either, it's very free flowing. And I saw a faux documentary at fantastic fest this year and uh, it's killing me. I can't remember the name of it, but it was from a Scandinavian country. Hmm. And it was put together by going into the archives uh, of, of one of the cities uh, of, uh, of, of the Scandinavian country, which were about to be purged because that happens with our people don't think of that about archives, but they often are purged to make room for new things or whatever. And um, the, the end result was this guy took this footage of mainly just daily life in that city at a certain point in time. I think it was the 1950s, 1960s. And he put together through narration a fake story of a plague that had descended on this city. Wow. And, And he was doing it using a lot of different video sourcing. So you had some similarity to the sort of like a hodgepodge approach. Um, but I wouldn't call Guy Madden exactly hodgepodge. Uh, he always feels like he's aiming for an aesthetic, but sometimes you feel like the aesthetic is taking over a bit. Yeah, or just even even aesthetically, it feels like not. You know, it feels like the thing he's that he really captures is the sound design. It feels like the production design, the sets, yeah. the costumes, mm-hmm. everything like that. But as far as where he like uh, especially post uh brand upon the brain um like he, i guess i guess actually it's a pretty steady uh uh approach to this throughout his filmography you like when the editing gets faster and faster and faster it feels like a lot of his films they'll just edit between shots without any real reason where it'll they'll be four different angles and it'll just keep editing between them and they're not really motivated and they that's that's part of the messiness as well for me is he doesn't seem to have complete control over uh the image the way that a david lynch would or something like that i was um, trying to think of who that doc- which i don't think he's trying to do that like <sighs> no, I, I, I think you're right yeah. he's not trying to right do that. but i but that's just sort of that's where the disconnect is where's for the, me personally. the documentary filmmaker that you really responded to that i want to see more of and i can't remember Can his you- name but he did the tobacco Farming. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. This is aesthetically extremely different. But the well, guy yeah. who did Bright Leaf, uh, Bright, Bright mm. Leaf, yeah. Just like I love it when it be- it becomes personal in the filmmaking process. To me, like I find that really fascinating. Like he he sets out to tell one big story, I, I but really, it becomes about the filmmaker. No, yeah. This is, uh, and some people might find that indulgent. Like, well, I mean, I think if, I think if you felt like Guy Madden was a was a less, if I felt like Guy Madden was putting on a pose. Mm-hmm. You know, Ross McElwee. Thank you. Bright. Yeah, yes. yeah. McElwee. Yes. McElwee. McElwee. I, I would say he errs on the side of being too self-absorbed. <laughs> like, sure. No. And, and but I, I find do, it I do like Bright Leaves quite a bit. But yeah, yeah. Well, somebody I, like to I, explore I, more. I, of. I prefer the bad and the balance. You want the first person to say that about Ross McElwee? No, no, absolutely not. Yeah. I, I do prefer the balance that 
Madden strikes between surrealist ideas that have nothing to do mm-hmm. with his mm-hmm. own experiences and him inserting his own experiences in them. Yeah. I mean, that to me, it's so funny because you know I've I've personally worked on autobiographical projects a lot in my life, and the frustration is always trying to um, tell a story about your own life that anyone else is going to give a damn about. True. And that's the weird thing about Madden is I do get that sense of somebody inviting me along for the ride. I don't get a sense of somebody who doesn't care about me at all mm-hmm. as a viewer. Yeah. yeah. Um, he's trying to make it a connection with you, yeah, whether yeah. it's through making it entertaining or bringing up a, a weird emotional connection or a psychological connection and asking yeah. me to consider a larger theme or something. Or making me care about hockey. You know, and he, he kind of <laughs> yeah, does that. that was a really films. weird thing for me with my Winnipeg was yeah. I suddenly wanted to know more about this little city. Right. Yeah, exactly. Um, and uh, that that's pretty high praise, I think, ultimately to walk away from a film and not forget it, mm-hmm. these, especially these days. Well, I mean, especially when the city identity as presented in this film is basically an inferiority complex. Like that is yeah. that is yeah. a very that's a very appealing uh, sort of entry point for me at least. You know? Absolutely, like, I, can, I find that more relatable than if you know than a history of a different city that doesn't have that sort of as part of its um, civic uh, nature. Yeah. Um, I, another film I would say would be a uh, Dawson city frozen time would, is another film that came up when I was watching oh, this. Oh, okay. Which is, obvi- which is again, is not surrealist. Mm. It's a straightforward documentary. But I don't mind it as long as they're interesting. In, it's in its editing. It's, it's, uh, it's about a, I'm like struggling now cause I, I saw it when it first came out. It's about a gold rush and a bunch of archival film footage. Mm. And it was basically like when films would be distributed, they'd go from city to city exhibiting. Right. And the last city they'd end up with it would be Dawson City, which is this like northern gold rush Yukon mm-hmm. sort of thing. Okay, okay. And they found like this archive all under this bottom of this lake. Yeah, they found 533 reels. Yeah, so, so a lot of it is assembled from these reels and stuff <laughs> like that. That's a really interesting. Again, it's... And it's, going, it's a very different thing from my Winnipeg. I, I think probably Heart of a Dog and of Time in the City are, are more direct examples. But like, yeah, um, I, I almost feel like my Winnipeg succeeds where some of his other films don't succeed as well is because he comes to this place where his experience that he's trying to communicate how he feels about something or what he remembers something being like is often done primarily through creating atmosphere. Um, and he's having um, fun with the narrative um, on top of that. And I don't know that I don't know that he does that quite as successfully in other movies. I mean, my Winnipeg is so atmospheric. It's so uh, wonderfully gloomy and weird. Um, uh, and, uh, and somehow it seems a little slower paced. Yeah, I can see that. You know, I think a little his, more accessible. I, I, I actually appreciate his narration. I know he didn't want to do it, but I think he was commissioned by Canada to put this whole thing together to sort of tell a story about right. Winnipeg. I think, I think that's another important thing to bring up, like the difference between a guy Madden and a David Lynch or a guy mm-hmm. Madden and a David Cronenberg or other, other sort of cult filmmakers is guy Madden, uh, mostly 
those are filmmakers who have gone in and out of the Hollywood or other sort of mainstream film systems. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you know, David Lynch had David Lynch made Eraserhead, which was funded by an AFI grant and made over the course of four years and tiny sets and stuff. He also made a Disney movie. You know, <laughs> it's a straight story. Like, yeah, like he ran the gambit. Madden has really only ever existed on the fringes of the mm-hmm. fringes of. Uh, a lot of his short films, when you look up why they exist, they exist because some city council was like, "If you shoot a movie in our city, we'll, you know, we'll give you the money to do so." Yeah, and it's a very small amount of money, but he doesn't turn. He doesn't really seem to turn down any opportunity to try to produce something new, uh, which again is part of the reason why I admire him so much as an artist and something I'm like a lesson I'm trying to take in my own life is just not to obsess over creating uh, a perfect great thing and instead try just create to just create. Yeah. yeah. So like, that's why we create this podcast. It doesn't have to be perfect. When we talk about <laughs> like, when we talk about these movies, whether they are, you know, I feel like saddest music in the world is probably the biggest budget he ever got. Or whether you're talking about my Winnipeg, you are always talking about movies that are made for so much less money than that's true pretty much every David Lynch movie, like then so much less money than pretty much all the, yeah. you know, there's not a Nicholas winding Refn movie that costs less than <laughs> my Winnipeg. You know, there's not a, you know, you go down the list. He's always operating on the fringe of the fringe. And I think that's, you know, that part of, it seems to be his, his preference for working is mm-hmm. to be very quick and to be sort of spontaneous, but also that's a, that's a market necessity yeah. as well. And I think, you understand that, and it makes the movies make more sense to me. Well, yeah, yeah I, I don't look at him like a purist either. Right, I think right. That, mm-hmm. I think that's really the interesting thing about him for me. Uh, one of the one of the big things is when when I watch his work, um, like you said, you know, um, he's out there, he's churning stuff out. I mean, he has fifty six different things he's he's directed, and his first film is like eighty eight. It's not that he's been doing since the seventies, you know. Yeah, yeah, and you kind of wonder. I mean. You know, does that make him, for instance, a more potent or a better artist, if you will, or a more purer artiste? And and I think the answer to that, he would say no. And I and I and I think that it 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 you know you hope that he, he doesn't ever get interpreted that way because he's just doing what comes naturally to him as a filmmaker. The same way that you know David Lynch does things, it's just mm-hmm. that some of his things are more commercial, right, than others. And and there's there's really no especially for someone whose he body just happens of, to have ideas that are more commercial. Right. There yeah. For someone whose body of work is goes in such strange and experimental and often non narrative places, there's not, there's really no pretension to Guy Madden. Yeah. Uh there's no pretend like you his films are not pretentious. They might be accessible, they might not be accessible, but it's not inaccessible because he is a structuralist like Stan Brackage, like I'm talking about the very mm-hmm. nature of cinema. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. He doesn't really operate on those. He's kinds a movie of terms. nerd at heart yeah. too, and he's just like a you regular guy. Go on YouTube <laughs> and look up like interviews he does talking about other films and stuff. It's great to hear him talk about movies. Yeah, you know? it really. There's a yeah. There's a real humanity uh, in there driving him, and and that is uh, just what you know. I mean, I'll, I'll never forget sitting down with Stan Brackage and Hollis Frampton, and I, I had gotten these discs from Criterion, and I, this is going to be great. I'm going to get the nitty gritty of what's really deep about cinema. And I put on, I put a, put them on, and I was like, "What the 
yeah. hell am I looking at? That's what I love. I watched a, I watched a bunch of Hollis Fran- as part of my talking about like short films and the, the book I read, uh, the William Beard book. It was talking about how avant garde is not actually a correct label for Guy Madden because his films are narrative and his films are like, okay. They're not really operating in the same way, other than like if you talk about early avant-garde works of like you know like he's he's sort of in the same air ballpark as like kenneth anger or someone mm. right but like a lot of his stuff is not really like that so i was also trying to get an idea of like well, okay well what other other artists who are considered avant-garde film definitely the outer, I'd, I'd say the outer space guy um, i'd say that's well, avant-garde. Have, you, have you guys seen maya darren i've i've yeah, seen I, uh meshes uh, what meshes of the afternoon he, what's the name of the film yeah yeah meshes in the afternoon i think is the name of it i i think that he fits a little bit in there yeah okay and Bunyel. Well, his shorts. His shorts, yeah. definitely, a lot of them are more in the avant-garde space than not. Um, but, uh... Yeah, the heart of the world. But, yeah, man. like, Hollis, Hollis Frampton, I cannot get into... I oh cannot get into a six-minute shot of a lemon <laughs> where the light is moving over the lemon. <laughs> Sorry, man. Um, but uh, if we want to talk... Actually, if we want to talk about each pick of another movie talk about in depth, I yeah. do want to say... The heart his, of the world? His features... Don't speak to me. Heart of the world. I adore heart yeah. of the world. Is, yeah. I, I thought it was great. Absolutely love. Yeah. Um, it's again, it's that rapid editing style, mm-hmm. but it, instead of going like, instead of it being, because it's a silent film and there aren't dialogue scenes, um, you, <laughs> you get a, you, instead of editing rapidly from like, okay, we have a shot with this person on, we have a shot with this person on, we're bouncing back and forth and stuff. It's just going forward, and mm-hmm. it's very low budget. These are very minimalist sets. He's use, making a lot of use of shadow to cover up the fact that you know you're actually not seeing as much yeah, as you yeah, think yeah. you are. But it 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 actually does tell a story, and it tells that great sort of guy Madden kind of a story where it's surrealist and it's where it's ideas. The idea that she's you know studying the Earth's core and that that has something to do with the emotional state of everyone on the yep. outside of it and then there's this capitalist and the, and then there's the sort of <laughs> meta meta uh, uh, meta aspect of that he is basically doing what looks like a Eisenstein Soviet propaganda kind of a movie oh, right um, so of course the evil capitalist comes in and that's almost like a parody of that uh, sort of you know, man with the movie camera, like era sure. Soviet cinema and stuff like that. So like there is that sense of humor to it as well, but it's um, so but streamlined it has, into six minutes. Yeah. And, and it, it has that, it has that ending that actually does emotionally resonate. Um, yeah. and is, you know, you think about, it and it, it doesn't quite all add up. You can't quite piece together. But in your she mind, becomes the heart of the world. Right. Like it's, <laughs> it's I can't beautiful. say like, well, of course this is a metaphor for blank and that's why this is a genius. But like it, it, tickles your brain enough that you keep returning to that image. Um, I really, really love the heart of the world. And there's a lot of his uh, shorts. Um, some of his shorts, again, feel a little looser and a little less considered, but mm-hmm. uh, I think send me to the electric chair, which is a short he made around the time of keyhole. I think I missed that um, one. That one's really, really fun. That one's on, you can find that on YouTube as well. Okay. Uh, a lot of his shorts are on YouTube. So that would actually, I would probably say for anyone listening, who's never seen a guy, Madden movie, the heart of the start world there. would yeah. be well, yeah, the and most accessible sort of place to start. Do you get a sense from him too, that he barely benefits from collaboration? I think his, you know, the stuff he did with Isabella Rossellini was so fun. Um, and it was, it's clear, like the influence of having another really great mind to bounce things off of played into 
uh, a real feckin' period for him, you know, of, 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 of making things and, and just putting stuff out there. Yeah, and for me, Coward's Bend the Knee was kind of something that I, yeah. I, I cherished so I didn't the experience get a chance to watch this one. of that one because it's basically an art. It was originally an art installation where you would go in and look inside little peepholes to watch the film. Yeah. <laughs> it's and just that, and it's shot it? that way. Is you know? it so is coward? Is it sort of a it's the playing fi- with voyeurism and stuff yeah, like that? Yeah, it definitely is. Um, it starts off with uh, <laughs> a shot of the microscope and a scientist is looking at sperm. And of course, the sperm ultimately becomes Guy Madden. Um, so a character named Guy Madden is in this. And you get to go through a lot of the similar themes that are explored in Brand Upon the Brain and to some extent my Winnipeg about how he grew up and uh, it's focused a lot on his hockey years and all the pressures he faced from his father. And um, at the time, like his his father was dating a younger woman and all this. It's it's it, it, it's really creepy <laughs> at times because he's feeling, um, you know, a lot of sexual insecurity throughout this movie. So to some extent, it's a little bit of a coming of age story from the mind of Guy Madden. Um, and it's all just kind of shocking and disturbing at times with, with the visuals here. But it's, it's again, like I, I could see like it working in an art museum and people going from one room to the other. And it's, I think that you can get all the different pieces because on the DVD, it does just sort of play together, but you can probably watch it in parts on YouTube. And I think that again, like a series of short films, because it ultimately adds up to an hour. And I felt pretty satisfied at, afterwards. I was like, that's a perfect length to tell this story. I mean, do you guys sort of feel, and I, I'm not exactly sure where all his projects fit in terms of timeline, but, you know, this is a guy who's done a ton of movies, books, art installations. Yeah, he's, he's written fiction as well. So you have, like, usually you have a sense of, Oh, this guy was an actor and now he's a writer. And, mm-hmm. you know, that, that's how we kind of follow the path of creatives in America. You know, people are actors and then they want to be directors and then they want to go on and they want to do this. And then, oh, that this person also paints. But, um, like, for instance, I think there was a while where, like, Jim Carrey wasn't making any movies. He was painting. Right. That's what he did. Sure. Um, and now he's making movies again. Mike Myers made a bunch of electronic music that he never released or anything wow. during his sort of absence from the film world. I didn't yeah. know that. <laughs> so is Guy Madden, is he just um, an unfocused gadfly that's all over the place? That's a, that's a feeling I get. And it's funny, you, you sort of talked about Guy Madden not being the most bingeable director. And on the one hand, it's like his films aren't super easy to watch where you just have it on the background and you guess get to enjoy the yeah. Cracker Jack story or anything like that. You do but have to pay attention. Hand, I feel like if I watched a Guy Madden movie every once in a while, yeah. my takeaway would always be, oh, I just don't really like Guy Madden movies. But because I watched so much of Guy Madden's work in over the course of a single month, I actually gained a better appreciation for his career. And I mm. think there are artists like that Jan Deck, who's a, is a singer-songwriter who... It did sort of a similar Sounds familiar. I should he, know what that is. Very, very low fi stripped down sort yeah. of unpolished detuned guitars sort of songs. And he would release like two albums a year and no one mm-hmm. knew who he was. And it was this thing where over the course of his work, it would all be the same guitar and the same thing. And then at a certain point you'd hear someone else's voice. and You'd be like, Whoa, who the hell is that? <laughs> and it's because you've like gotten, and it's like, 
Uh, like you listen to any given Jandek song and you just go, oh, this isn't very good. But mm-hmm. you listen to his work over a whole and there's something very fascinating about it. And there's a lot of artists who work like that. A lot of rappers actually are more this approach where they'll just release a ton of mixtapes and they're very unpolished and they're very much just like, all right, I'll take this beat from here and I'll just sort of freestyle over it. And any individual song, it's like, that's fine, whatever. But over the course of their career, you actually see sort of the trajectory and mm-hmm. you see the things they return to and the sort of their approach and that's what makes them an interesting artist and I think Guy Madden for me is that yeah and in that way he's very much like a David David Lynch yeah for sure yeah but there were a couple I couldn't I couldn't penetrate I couldn't get into like Twilight of the Ice Nymphs or Keyhole (laughs) Twilight those are the two ones that I put on and then like 10 minutes well Uh, just Keyhole I got 30 minutes in but Twilight I got 10 minutes in and I'm like maybe if I have time I'll return to this one I've had people tell me Archangel is their their uh, favorite. Oh, really? So that was yeah. the first one I watched. And hmm. Archangel is actually, it's also a little bit more approachable in that the visual style, you know, he's very influenced by silent cinema, but he doesn't really try to make his movies look like silent films in any way. There's You're like, right. you look at, you look at saddest music in the world. It's like, there's no movie that has ever looked like this, but Archangel is the one that sort of feels like with the inner titles and everything, he is trying more to make okay. it look like an actual film from yeah. the twenties. And, um, as a result, you have this sort of built in context as like, you know, okay, he's doing a riff on this type of cinema. I have some co- understanding of this type of cinema. So even though the plot I found totally incomprehensible, I uh, was able to at least sort of watch it and contextualize it on that level and hmm. sort of digest it. And I I do think Archangel is one of my more liked features of his. That okay, I'll brand check upon that one the out. brain in my Winnipeg, I would say. Will Guy Madden ever move beyond where he is now? Well, we, I mean... Picture him working with a particular person that would help him to have a mainstream or a, or a more accessible niche. That's a good I, question. So, so what the, the idea I had was he should have an Adult Swim show. Yeah, you ever watch oh, Adult yeah. Swim? You know how they have like well, twelve minute episodes? Yeah. Oh and it's just like... Well, if, that's how I felt about The Forbidden Room. I felt like I was watching a little bit yeah, of an Adult if, Swim if show. If he just had an Adult Swim show, that'd be great. But like for me, I think the thing that will always limit him is that is the just the financial reality that filmmaking is extremely expensive and that if you if in unless he's given i mean he talked about i, I saw an interview with him where he's talking about sad music in the world and he's saying you know i don't really know how to light a big set i had the biggest sets i'd ever had in my life in music <laughs> the world and i would just shoot one little corner of it because like I, that's just how my mind works so yeah, like, yeah. i don't know if he would want to make a larger scale project or whatever but the fact is with the kind of money his movies are made for, like brand up on the brain, I think it was made for like $30,000 or something. Yeah, I know it's crazy. Like, and he toured with it too. And like, he toured around. Like, I think even the music box played it with Crispin Glover. If you, attendance. if you yeah. look at yeah. carnival of souls is a film mm-hmm. from 1961. And in 1961 dollars, that was made for twice as much money. Sure. Yeah. And that is thought of as a very low budget film. It's called the drive-in Fellini was what the director yeah, her ex- was going for. All time favorite horror movie. So like, you know, uh, night of living dead considered a very low budget movie for 1968 was made for like three times what brand upon the yeah. brand is made for. When you are working with that kind of scale, you really 
don't you ha- you can grow in different ways. You can explore different ideas. You can do what he did in Forbidden Room, where he's like, "All right, now that I have digital technology, I'm actually going to create the textures I always had in my mind with the film decomp mm-hmm. and the bubbling and the burn in and all that yeah. sort of thing." Yeah, like he can go in those directions, but I don't think he can really make something radically different if he's if he's never going and he has never been in his entire long you know prolific career. He has never been a successful filmmaker commercially right i think what i think what could be really interesting for him is doing some music videos yeah he did he did he did did one for sparkle horse which is one of my favorite bands right yeah i forgot about that yeah he did one for it's a wonderful life which is a gorgeous song and it's like how did this not come together in my head a music video is perfect that's what i always say like uh for me guy i kind of like guy madden just doing whatever he's drawn to and like the green fog isn't a good example of like that's a great idea and that is that's yeah, a, we didn't, that's we didn't see it though. Again, that's a that's but that's again that's a film that is made through a grant of different mm-hmm. organizations because it's about the city of San Francisco. So like it has that angle, and he can get it made that way. But it's a movie yeah. that will never be released. Does on Weird Al listen to your show? Maybe we could get uh, Weird Al and guy I would hope so. together to do a right. Oh my god, that would be amazing. Nicholas Winding Refn is the one I always think of. Like, you should just do be doing music videos because you don't care about the stories you're telling. Guy Madden, I kind of like. Oh, now here we go. We don't have have the time to get into a Neon Demon here, but uh, I I think yeah, music videos would work for Guy Madden. Uh, The thing about Guy Madden though is he he that Sparkle Horse music video he did. He's not particularly interested in doing what a the quote-unquote job of music video director, which is figuring out a way to visually depict what a song sounds like. It's Mm -hmm. very separate. Yeah. The visuals and the song in that music video, like, they kind of don't even go together. So I don't know if he has that interest. Yeah. Um, He did kind of do a music video within Forbidden Room because that spark song. Yeah, that spark song is wonderful. (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to open the show with that spark song. Absolutely. What about a kid show? Could we see Guy Madden doing a kid show? Pee Wee's Playhouse, like maybe new (laughs) Paul Rubens. Paul Rubens is uh, rebooting uh, Pee Wee, and it's uh, an older, creepier Pee Wee. So uh, Mm. maybe we could. uh, Yeah, let's hook them up. Let's let him get to a. I mean, I want to see Guy Madden doing everything because it's. I, it'll be interesting at the very least. I won't like most of it, but it will at least be interesting. Like, let's do have Guy Madden do a Simpsons couch gag. Like, Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. All right, Guy Madden, Marvel movie coming. I Friday, bet. Friday the 13th reboot. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Coming this way. Do that Quentin Tarantino thing where he directs an episode of CSI or something. Like, Great. Will we be able to tell when Guy Madden becomes too self-referential? That's really the question I keep going to. I, that's already part of the, auto, the autobiographical content. Like The short film he made before Tales from Gimli Hospital, which was a short feature, The Dead Father, like... Oh yeah, he started out that way, yeah. and he's been there ever since. Pretty much. So as long as he doesn't get too precious, uh, I mean, I guess he can get away with being precious. Like, yeah, I, yeah, yeah. Probably. I think the answer is no. We will not know. <laughs> now that I think about it. So, what would be your top three picks from the world of Guy Madden? Oh my goodness! I can go first. Go I don't mind. Uh, number three would be the Forbidden Room. Uh, two would be Cowards Bend the Knee, and number one would be My Winnipeg. For me, they're all uh, shorts. My number three is Nightmare, which is a uh, oh, that's a cool title. I think it was it yeah, like Mayor of a City. Yeah, Nightmare. no, I, li- I like yeah, I saw that on Amazon. Yeah, but yeah, I, I just it would probably wouldn't track for people listening, but um, that one is very it's it's I think it was made around the same time as Brand Upon the Brain, and it mm-hmm. 
and it covers a lot of the same things where it's like this orphanage of kids helping this dad use Aurora Borealis to create a sort of analog radio that goes across Canada. It is absolutely all my favorite things. I really like that. Um, my number two is Send Me to the Electric Chair, which I think is a hilarious 50s housewife sex freak out. Um, it's like, it's like one of those industrial films where, uh, you see like, you know, the modern living will make, you know, the woman's home easier with all these appliances. It's like, if you took that and turn it into a sex dream, it would be send me to the electric chair. And my number one nice. is uh, heart of the world. Excellent. Uh, my number one, one, one would be my Winnipeg, which I can watch on an endless loop. I'm just I loved it that much. Uh, number two would probably be saddest music in the world. And number three would probably be Brand up, brand on the Brain. Brand Upon the Brain. Brand very, Upon the Brain. That's very good. Well, thanks, Dave. This was a blast. I had so much fun. Yeah. yeah. You'll have to come back again in the future. I hope so. There's going to be more directors down the we'll road. We'll do Nicholas Wendig Riff. And- oh, have we, we done? We have. It's one of those episodes like I'm like, eh, we probably could have done it better, but that's okay. <laughs> <laughs> but it's, he's also put out interesting work since then. That's the thing about going back to looking at our list of the directors we've done. Like, oh, this person put out this movie that would be great to talk about, even though we've already talked about their other movies in the past. So I know it's I kind keep of bringing up Robert Robert Fust. Oh uh, yeah, yeah, you which, mentioned uh, that. Uh, I, th- I find an endlessly fascinating filmmaker. I I, I adore Abominable Doctor Fives, but I like looked into it. I'm like, I don't know if I'm going to be able to get a hold of most of these movies. Of course, I you might have some. Them. I can get them for you. <laughs> okay. Well, down the line, if we, yeah. if, 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 we got a, if we got a line on it, then maybe we should look into Robert Fused. Yeah. Well, thanks again, Dave. This is great. And uh, Patrick, where can we find you in the world of the internet? Probably oh, just on Letterboxd. Just on Letterboxd. Yeah. Uh, I, uh, I have a Vimeo, but I don't. I have <gasps> the one short film on there. I don't know the, the link at the moment, so I'll just... Talk about letterbox.com uh, slash Patrick Rapole. Great. And you can find me at Letterboxd, now playing Jim, as well as on Twitter, now playing Jim, Facebook, yeah, 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 all those places. Um, so n- next month, we got a we got a hell of a director to talk about that I think is kind of long overdue. Yeah. Mr. Mike Lee. Absolutely. Yeah. Very excited about Mike Lee. Me too. Me too. And uh, we got to figure out who in the city owns a copy of secrets and lies and then, and then borrow it from them. Cause that is, is that, way out of print and hard to find. I can't believe that's way out of print I because know, that it's was one cr- of those things. It was hugely acclaimed yeah, upon its release. Absolutely. That's so weird. I've never seen it and it drives me insane. And is it not at the library? Uh, I, I don't guess believe it's, I think probably they had it at one point. Mm, interesting. Okay. Of course you can visit us at directors club podcast.com. Well, stay tuned folks. Cause we got one hell of an episode coming up next month. Thank you so much for listening. Thanks again to the great Dave Canfield for appearing on this show. And we will see you next month when we talk about Mike Lee. I am the only one